Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Sunday, July 29th, 2018, starting just after 4 p.m., actually at 4.12 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 166th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for August of 2018. Uh, hey guys, how's, how's it going? Oh, it's going all right, Chris. Good to be here. Hey guys, good to be back. Hey Kelly. Uh, Austin, you have some fire and, and brimstone going on in your neck of the woods, I heard earlier. Yeah, the um, uh, for about the last two weeks straight, the forest fires just south of here have been so intense that you can see the smoke hanging in the air during the daytime. Mm. And, um, you can, you know, it smells like a, like a meatless barbecue outside. And it's, um, giving my poor, my poor cat coughing fits. <laughs> wow. Probably not very good for me either, but, you know, I worry about the cat. It's sweet that you worry about the cat. Well, he makes a big show of it. Wow, that is pretty serious. Um, but otherwise, you've been taking some time off or relaxing a little bit, or at least not uh, doing things full yeah. full blast. I dropped my schedule down a little bit. I stopped doing, uh, I put my Deccan column on pause. I'm still teaching a class. I'm still doing readings and I'm still writing dailies. Um, but it's, you know, I lowered the demands on my time and energy, which is great because, um, um, I've really, I've, I've, I got really behind on a lot of things, uh, including taking care of myself. And so, uh, I'm really glad I made the decision to retrograde with Mars. I like that. It's like dancing with Mars, but not quite as fun. Maybe <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> like that, or it's, it's more, yes, the, the dance of, uh, you know, the sweet science boxing, it's more, it's more rolling with the punches. Rather yes. than rather than leaning into them and getting them right in the face, smart move. I think very smart move. Thanks, brilliant. And what have you been up to, Kelly? Um, I've been teaching actually. My online class on predicting with progressions has been running through July. So uh, I didn't. I wanted to schedule that in June, but I wasn't with someone that I'm doing a little bit of work with. We couldn't quite make it happen. So we been running it through July and it's been going really well because I've been using some new technology with it. Um, that's been going really fun, but I haven't quite got to the retrograding with Mars part yet, but I had that scheduled for parts of August. So I'm really looking forward to that. Brilliant. All right. Um, well, I can't believe we're already in August at this point. 2018 is flying by. Um, let's see, let's do some, we've got to get some news and announcements out of the way. Uh, we have a giveaway that we're doing this month and then a few discussion topics and then we'll get into the forecast for August here later, probably in like 45 minutes or something like that, if people want to jump ahead in the recording to that part of the episode. So um, first, news and announcements. One of the things I wanted to mention is that the Astrology Podcast now has an Instagram account. So you can find it at on Instagram, at the Astrology Podcast, all one word. Um, thanks to Kelsey Rose uh, Tortisi for snagging the username um, at the United Astrology Conference and then giving it to me. I've been meaning to start an Instagram account for a while, and I'm glad I did because there's already a ton of people following us there. Um, so yeah, you can follow that if you're if you're interested. I, are either of you into Instagram? Uh, Austin, are you a big like Instagram guy? <laughs> um, you know, so um, my 
hatred, my ever increasing hatred for Facebook is making me consider doing Instagram. I realized recently that Twitter is slightly less awful than Facebook. Way less. Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Right. Um, Less. Less. Um, And then if Instagram seems to be pictures and less words, and I like pictures, um, but I don't know. I don't have an Instagram account, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, a Twitter on a astrology, astro Twitter, as they call it, has really exploded over the past few years. Like it used to be like not very active, but now suddenly tons of people are using it. And I didn't realize until recently, but the same thing is also happening on Instagram. I remember when it first came out like years ago, like 2012, and I was using it for a little bit, but then I, my account was hacked and I sort of forgot about that account and never went back to it, but it's become a whole sort of ecosystem unto itself. Yeah. And Facebook does own Instagram. I don't know whether they bought it recently or something, but there is definitely like a lot of cross-pollination between Facebook and Instagram. A few people are making some notes in the comments about this. And Instagram has exploded lately and that's it, there's a lot of growth there, I guess. It's not as hectic or crazy as Facebook is. But yeah, um, Astro Twitter, it used to kind of be Sam Reynolds who would have some really good discussions on Astro Twitter. And yeah. now there's more than a dozen people that are having these, re- and they're high quality conversations. They're not just like, oh, you're a Leo, you'll meet someone sexy this week. It's like debates about house systems or specific technique, or there was a lot about the eclipse, but from a more substantial perspective rather than a superficial perspective. So, Right. People are are using it to actually generate content. It's not just like promoting something that's somewhere else, but this is like the platform that people are using to like write a blog post basically, but doing it in a much shorter format. Uh, I guess that's what shifted over the past few years that I didn't realize is that people started using that as the actual platform. Yeah. And like Twitter's got these threads that you can have. And now they have these things called moments where you can kind of get a direct link to a thread conversation. So it's easier to go back and find, um, you know, a series of tweets on a particular topic. So um, yeah, if you guys decide to spend more time there, we'll look forward to chit-chatting with you. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because there's little things that have probably developed out of there that have been unique in terms of um, astrology terminology and stuff. Like I've noticed over the past few months, or maybe Mm. longer than that, that everybody has started using the phrase like Leo season has begun or cancer season has begun. And I thought this was a relatively recent phenomenon. As soon as I posted that on Twitter, everybody pointed out it's been going on for a lot longer than I thought, like most of the past decade, but it's something that certainly got more popular so that it's entered like the common sort of public discourse where like a lot of people are actually using that terminology, which like a decade ago, I don't remember sort of being as common. Do you guys? No, that makes sense. I think it's a piece of, because when you say that, I think like, oh, I've, I can't remember ever not saying that. And I don't think, uh, you know, especially with other astrologers, uh, I, I think it's like a piece of like astrology slang that's making it into, you know, uh, you know, a wider population. Yeah, like like Mercury retrograde or Saturn return. It's sort of gone mainstream as something that you m- you might have heard some astrologers use or people using it in columns. But I, I feel like I see it everywhere now. And somebody on Twitter actually pointed a like a screenshot of a Google Trends search for Leo season and Cancer season. I think it was. Sorry, who it was Alan Laguda um, mm. who showed on Twitter how 
um, it was actually increasing over the past eight years or so um, in frequency in terms of the number of people searching for that. So it's something that has been building or developing or getting more popular. But that in and of itself might be a sort of side effect of um, astrology becoming more popular with millennials or astrology being becoming more popular on social networking sites like Twitter or Instagram or what have you. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. That's um that's kind of exciting to hear because if I ever go back to writing monthlies, which I probably will at some point, I've always wanted to write them based on solar months, right? Based on cancer season, yes! Leo season. Yes. But it but it's and I think every astrologer does, but you're like, oh, it's gonna confuse people. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm not gonna get any search traffic. I'll just write July. But like you know, the, the sun's movement through a sign is a much more real measure of time than the uh, the vulgar calendar months. Did you call them vulgar? Yeah, that's the appropriate yeah. term. They're, it, vulgar happens to sound insulting, which is great, um, <laughs> but it is the technically the right term. Okay. Right. So that's always the tension, though, that astrologers sometimes have when writing and creating content and marketing themselves of that tension between you know, saying something that's genuine to or fully genuine to the astrology versus trying to translate that into language that the public already understands and knows and, and relates to. And you've you've been you've put yourself in the position to feel those tugs recently. Yeah. So I guess it's been a month. And the last time we did an episode together, I was thinking about and had decided I was going to do some horoscopes. And then immediately after that, I actually went ahead. I stayed up all night and recorded a series of 12 video horoscopes for each uh, zodiacal sign or each rising sign. And that was like a huge undertaking that took me all night to do. But I eventually actually got it out for July and it was a huge success. But it was interesting, some of the um, the tensions that I ran into in terms of terminology, in terms of interpretation. I talked about that some of already, uh, some of that already in the episode on why horoscopes are still important with Adam Ellenboss and Joe Gleason a few weeks ago. But yeah, I should check in and, and talk to you guys a little bit about that because there's some things I meant to get your your opinion and, and advice on. So. Um, I actually did my second, it was such a success that I did my second set of horoscope videos yesterday. So I'm a little bit out of it today because doing 12, 15 minute ish videos is actually um, quite a. a kind it's a of massive grueling. undertaking. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's the one downside of how I'm approaching it is doing it with the video adds a lot of additional complications and sort of things that, that you guys might not have had to deal with and where I would almost wish I was just doing a written version first because there's some things that I could kind of like copy and paste or sort of do at my own pace. Whereas with a video, you just have to go and you just have to talk for 15 minutes. I mean, have you guys done anything like that video wise in the past? I'm no. actually doing something. It's not horoscope videos, but in my Stellar Insights subscription offering, I do like a, a week ahead video for every week of the month. So okay. I have to record six or seven videos per month. You know, one's a month ahead overview, one is week, one for each of the four weeks of the month. And then there's like a check your chart video, which is more of an application thing. So I do know what, I can't record all six on one day. So the fact that you did all 12 on one day, I totally take my hat off to you because 15 minutes, a 15 minute video can be an hour or an hour and a half by the time you prep what you're going to say, prep the tech get yourself organized. I don't know. I always faff and waste a lot of time getting drinks and cups of tea and making sure my hair isn't too frizzy. But 
Um, obviously, you don't have to worry about that part, Chris, but um, it's it's a lot to do the videos. Although the flip side is writing things out, it's t- equally time consuming, but for different reasons. Right. Yeah. Like I thought about one of the issues is preparing and to what extent I would prepare versus just doing it on the fly and looking at the charts. And I almost wished I was doing a video version because then I would be more readily prepared in terms of recording each video and looking at the specific transits to each rising sign. But then I would sort of be doubling my work. But I have a much better appreciation for how prepped you guys are going into these forecast episodes now, because if each of you have done sort of forecasts or or horoscope column before we actually record these, you guys are, are much more familiar with the transits than than anybody is. I mean, you're as familiar as you possibly can be each month before we record one of these episodes. Um, one of the issues that I ran into, and I don't know if you guys get this, is this tension between being overly specific versus overly vague as one of the biggest issues that I ran into doing a doing a horoscope column. Yeah, definitely. Because, um, you know, vague isn't good, but you can't be more specific than you can, given the information you have. You're like, okay, so this person has a Leo rising and I'm delineating a Jupiter thing. Jupiter's in Scorpio. So Jupiter's in the fourth from Leo. And, you know, Jupiter's going to be ruling the fifth from Leo as well as the eighth. And I know what aspects it is, but like, you know, you don't, you don't have their chart, right? You just, you're just delineating from the perspective of one sign, which is great practice. But, and so there's stuff you can do with that where you're like, oh, okay. So if that Jupiter gets activated, not only is there going to be fourth house stuff, but because Jupiter has a trine, you know, it can see the eighth, which it rules in that chart. There'll be some eighth house stuff there too, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, yeah, exactly. It's like, what can I say given the information and what is like only going to be true for like, you know, 20% of them. And then sometimes, I don't know, Kelly, you probably experienced this where you're like, Ooh, like for that 30% or whatever, who have this other setup in addition, I know it's going to look exactly like this. And so sometimes I'll, I'll try to include like, and if, you know, if you've got this going on or if, you know, blah, 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 then it's going to look more specifically like this, but you have to kind of do an if, if, if then. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember in my early twenties when I first started my horoscope column writing career, if if you want to call it that, you know, editors would sometimes come back and say, okay, that's great. But what if this person, like if you're writing about a seventh house thing and you're like, this is a really good thing for commitment. But then the editor's like, but what if they're single or what if they're, you know, um, what if that's just not where they're at? So you kind of have to then think, okay, this is the theme, but how could it apply in five different circumstances, given that not everyone is in the same position at the same time? Right. Um, right. Or if it's like a fifth house transit and you relate that to like children or your children or third house and like siblings, because one of the issues I ran into is like, sometimes that is going to be very relevant and I almost still want to mention it. But obviously, that's not going to be relevant for everybody. So that's the that's mm. the general issue you run into when you're doing a horoscope column is that it is something that's very general. And sometimes you can make specific statements, but obviously, it's not going to be applicable to everybody. But when should you allow, allow that to stop you from going out and making the more specific statement occasionally? Yeah. Well, and, and again, it, it's sort of a if this is your situation, it's probably going to look like this. It like so if you have kids, look for yes. this here. Yes. Um, you know, or with the third, like the third, I always I always see people who are 
like siblings to a person, those relationships get um, uh, get activated by third house transits, even if the person is an only child. I remember when I when I went into my third house perfection, um, I literally had two friends show up uh, within the week of going into that perfection who were both um, guys that I'd known for 20 years and had always done right by me who were like brothers to me. They mm. like both showed up and I hadn't seen them for a long time. They both showed up like immediately within the week. And I was like, oh, yeah, third house. And I saw my brother for the first time in a while that same week or yeah, w- actually within the month. But it's, you know, it's both siblings and sibling like you just got to understand what sibling like means to the third house. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had read somewhere, it might even be in Deb Holdings book on the houses that she had found maybe an obscure reference to uh, friendship also being a little bit connected to the third because the third house also sextiles the ascendant like the 11th does. Um, and I thought that's, which fits sort of what you're saying, Austin, like sibling, like people can be friends, I guess. Yeah. I feel like it's, um, like uh, third house includes like homies. Yeah. Like like brothers in arms kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, just like your, you know, your gang, um, whoever, you know, whoever you, your crew. Yeah, exactly. Uh, squad, I believe the kids are saying now. (laughs) That's, That's actually one of the issues um, in ancient astrology, like in the Hellenistic tradition. In modern time, we've tended, as the tradition went forward, to like narrow down the houses so that there's like one house that relates to each thing or each person. But in a lot of the Hellenistic texts, they have like multiple houses that relate to different things, like multiple houses for friends or multiple houses that relate to children. Like the tenth house is one of the houses that relates to children, in addition to the fifth, and things like that. So I, I, that's something I think about sometimes when issues like this come up. Yeah. Well, and there's also, you know, derived or secondary houses, right? Like the, right. the you know, so the, so for example, the, um, you know, like the siblings of your siblings, the third from the third, or, you know, the, you know, the siblings of your mom, the third from the fourth, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Oh, you can you can have a lot of fun with that. Your children's children, your grandkids, and so what's funny is like, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. Sorry, go on. I, um, no, I don't want to get. I, I don't want to get too. I mean, I'll we, get we lost. We could go in on about and, this for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> Did you want so, to say more, Chris, about your video well, horoscopes? The only thing, I, other thing, I wanted to say, I'm about to put up my next set, which I just recorded yesterday on my YouTube channel, probably today or tomorrow. The only other thing I wanted to say is we did a whole episode, sort of defending you know, the writing of horoscopes and why it's valid and why it's still important. And I almost wanted to um, see if you guys wanted to like play devil's advocate for what is the other side of the argument of of where where do horoscopes come up short or or where is it that the more advanced forms of astrology are still, I don't know, important? Not not important, because it's almost like an obvious answer, but what's what's the other side of the argument if we were going to argue against horoscopes? Because I almost felt like I didn't present that side of the argument enough in in that episode, and so I was curious what the arguments would be if we wanted to try to generate some genuine ones for, I don't know, against horoscopes. Well, I would say that if horoscopes are not contextualized as being uh, a simplification, uh, a simplification, and a fun and sometimes you you know sometimes fun, sometimes useful simplification, then 
they um you know then they can give people the impression that that is that is astrology um that is mm. the extent of astrology but i think as long as they're properly contextualized there's no like deep moral argument against it i mean is it is it always possible to contextualize it cuz like i don't you know it's like i don't think i've said anything necessarily there's sort of an implication there that there's more to this or well, sometimes I, there's like a comment in passing but how do you contextualize it um i don't know i've had a disclaimer on my website above every horoscope section for as long as i can remember that's like hey guess what this is not the full extent of astrology this is not you know you should look at your chart etc cetera, etc cetera. this mm. is fun and useful it's not not astrology but this is not the thing <laughs> like this is not the entirety of the thing this is not it in even remotely its full glory that said let's do some scopes and i've like gone back and forth um about doing horoscopes a lot because half of me be like oh this is stupid i hate this um and then i'll be like oh no this is really like a good way to extend beyond um the inherently esoteric nature of like full astrology um but yeah i don't know it's um there's definitely like you said i'm really glad that i'm really glad that you are feeling the tension chris because mm. kelly and i have like been how should we say cooked like soup <laughs> in this tension for like a decade plus right right <laughs> and so it's not it's nice because i can i can I can see you're really feeling it. And these are, I don't know, it's, um, it's good. It's yeah. I mean, the arguments against it are the simplification. How can one horoscope apply to everyone born under Aries? And, and some of those arguments actually say more about the other person and their lack of understanding about the depth of astrology. Um, so I think that part of the contextualization is for us on the inside of astrology, knowing that horoscopes have a place, but they're certainly, they're just an entry point. I mean, you couldn't even call them an appetizer. Like they're not even that, but that they are pointing you to where, you know, this can go. And I think they can be a really good tool for education. So informing people that, you know, they might be this sign, but this planet might affect this topic or whatever, or that, you know, that there is a Jupiter and it's going to do something to them. And, that or not do something to them, but, you know, stir something in their chart and get some sort of resonance in their life. Um, there's a lot of arguments against them, but a lot of the time they do seem to just be, it's like they're missing the point, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Sure. Well, I just like having that discussion in order to like further articulate that because it may be something a lot of astrologers are almost taking for granted or, um, yeah, it's sort of a good disclaimer to have on some of these that that most people may not realize. So it's nice to see um, astrologers that have been doing this professionally for a long time actually talking about it and exploring some of those issues. Yeah, I, I, I guess one danger, um, which is not uh, how should we say, doesn't contradict the practice as a whole, um, but can certainly create negative results, is when the astrologer who is writing the horoscopes doesn't doesn't give context and does things like hey aries you're an aries how's it being an aries and they encourage an over identification with mm. the qualities of a single sign right so th when the horoscope is focused on personality description like you're an aries and therefore you have these traits that can be i mean women's magazines love this kind of stuff but it is getting more into well it's less 
aligned to the actual solar chart, for instance, rather than saying this topic is highlighted this month. So there's a difference because horoscopes can be this is your personality according to your sign or they can be this is what to expect in the month ahead according to your rising sign, but not everybody understands the difference. Well, and it's tough because there's going to be some people that have like a stellium of planets or have like their sun and moon and rising sign in the same sign. And they really do like identify with that zodiacal sign very closely. And those are the people perhaps that might respond to their horoscope the most strongly. Whereas there's other people where, you know, if they're reading it for their sun sign and that's like not a major placement in their chart, you know, they're ascendant to something different and they were born with a night chart or something like that where they may not identify with it at all. And I wonder if there's almost a filtering mechanism that's built into horoscopes as a result of that in terms of who gets really into it versus those who it never really resonates for them until they find the more advanced forms of astrology. It's 100% a solar filter. It is. Yeah. So day chart people are generally going to resonate perhaps more or people who know their rising sign. I mean, one thing I say about horoscopes that I'm saying to clients and students, newer clients or newer students, if you read horoscopes, that's totally cool. But can you please read for your rising sign rather than your sun sign because the way they're written, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. Well, you know, when I write, uh, when I write horoscopes, um, I always end up, uh, Cancer, which is my rising, almost always ends up being more on point than Pisces, which is my son. With yeah. Pisces, I'm always like, yeah, I can see how that applies. That's not wrong. But with Cancer, I'm like, yeah, that's what's going on. Well, it's so, they're so houses based when you write horoscopes because the, the starting assumption for anyone writing horoscopes is we assume the sun sign and the rising sign are the same because we can only write 12. We can't write 144. I mean, imagine if you had to record 144 videos, Chris. <laughs> Every week. It's insane. I mean, there isn't enough, like from a print media perspective, there's no way they'd give you that much space. Um yeah, but you're right. I mean, I had a client recently who was uh, a Libran, but she was the sun Uranus in Libra and just getting their personal chart interpretation of why you're not like other Librans. She was like, oh, now I understand because my colleague was trying to tell me about Libra, but I didn't relate to it at all. And I was like, well, for these various reasons, you're not like other Libras. And I mean, it's it's understanding, I guess, that horoscopes are the gateway drug. They're not the main. They're not the main thing. Yeah, well, one of the positive things, at least, is I've, I've noticed that with the popularization of astrology lately, that people, more people know what their ascendant or rising sign is than 10 years ago. And that's becoming much more common knowledge because it's so much easier now to, that's one of the side effects of the rise of the internet and websites like astro.com and, and cafe astrology is that it's so easy now to calculate your ascendant or your rising sign as long as you know your birth time that I, I feel like so many more people know it and know their big three of like their sun, moon, and rising sign than I've ever seen before. And that has sort of interesting implications then as well in terms of the ability of people to read horoscopes from their rising sign rather than only knowing their sun sign. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. So, you know, it would be fun if people knew more. I think it would be really interesting to do horoscopes from the perspective of, from the house position of the planet that ruled the ascendant, oh, right? Nice. Like write horoscopes from the Lord of the Ascendant, but that that requires a lot on the behalf of the audience. Sure, yeah. Um, one other drawback I've noticed is that sometimes when I'm delineating house placements, like that Uranus ingress of Taurus, uh, Uranus ingressing into Taurus, and how that shifted into a new whole sign house for everybody over the past few months, 
And that one's actually very important this month because Uranus is making its very first station within that sign that it's made since it ingressed for the first time in May. You know, there's some people that, that are going to re- react very strongly to that transit early on. And there's some people that are going to react very strongly, like much later on, depending on where their personal placements are. And that's the only area where I felt like there's been some issues in terms of generalness versus specificity, um, because you don't, you, you can't say who's going to, you know, feel it earlier versus later. Like somebody that has their ascendant at two degrees of Taurus versus somebody that has it at like 20 degrees of Taurus. Well, so one horoscope trick that you'll see is you're like, okay, so, you know, Uranus enters Taurus. It means it's for Taurus. For those of you, you know, for those, for the Tauruses out there who were born, you know, like in April, right? Just specifying that, like the April Tauruses, you're going to feel this a lot more. Mm, okay. Right? Versus the, because they, because people know their birthday, right? And so you yes. don't even have to say early or late sign. You can be like, you know, for those, you know, mid November Scorpios, you know, this is going to hit you double or, you know, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. I like that. That's a good trick. It's an indirect way of getting and knowing the degrees or at least one degree of the the sun. Kelly, you've probably done yes. that a hundred times, right? Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, Austin, we've got all the same tricks. I love it. Okay. Um, yeah. I need to, I need to mine you guys for like additional shortcuts and like little horoscope writer tricks. You guys are like battle um, hardened horoscope writers at this point. Indeed. Grizzled. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on a break. I've benched myself. I'm actually, other than my annuals for well-being, I'm not doing weeklies or monthlies at the moment in any capacity, which is, I haven't been doing them for about 12 months and I'm almost recovered from um, however long I did them before to start something again. So I don't think I want to go back into weeklies, but I'm contemplating monthlies. Um, I liked, I, you know, I, I'm taking a break from it. Um, but I like doing the Deccan lays, um, you know, which I did over the last year. I did. That's really cool. I did one round of 36. Um, and I like that. Um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't put that on pause because I disliked it. It was just taking a ton of energy and time. Um, yeah. Sure. And that's what I remember about weeklies is it's just, you know, you, there's no let up every, you know, You've just got to churn them out. Um, I mean, dailies is next level, but yeah. Well, I mean, the I mean the the furthest extent that um, where angels fear to tread and I will not go is horoscopes for dailies. I do, I do, I do write ups of the days. Oh, you know, that's I, right. I, you don't do daily horoscopes. Oh, no, okay. I, I delineate the quality of the day, um, and you know, um, just so. Okay. It, it's almost more of a like casual electional thing. It's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, this, you know, evening's really nice. We get like a nice moon Jupiter during the evening, you know, mornings rough, you know, moon aspects, Mars and Saturn before departing for it's more of like a scheduling convenience. No, than I've it actually, is a, like, you know where I read yours, Austin, I read these on Twitter and I love them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, we have, but yeah, no, scheduled. they're not real dailies from a horoscope perspective. No, they're, they're not horoscopes. No. Um, they're description of the conditions with some suggestions about, you know, um, strike while the iron is hot. Like this is a good time to do some shit. Um, or like this is not a good Friday night for partying. Don't do right. Uh, or, you know, I advise not to. Uh, I also give people advice on when to have fruitless arguments on social media. You know, when there's a really good uh, Mars configuration, I'm like, you know, if you really want to waste some time uh, becoming furious with strangers, this is really the prime. Jump on Twitter now. 
I love that. That's truly astrology for the 21st century. (laughs) Right. But uh, I I like to, I I can't bring one. I don't want to do daily horoscopes Uh, on two. I I like taking a more electional descriptive angle. And I, one, what I really like about doing the more electional descriptive is, so I do, I do all, I do a month ahead of time and then we pre-program them so that they release. Um, And then my Patreons all get the whole month as a PDF. but um, it's good for micro analyzing the days because you're looking at the moon, applying, departing yeah. between everything all month. And so sometimes I see things from that point of view that I only um, that I see things in more detail from that point of view that I might have noticed from a monthly or decanly or weekly overview. But I'm like, oh, but when it actually happens, the moon's over here and then there's this it, like it's a yes. little bit different. This is why I actually have encouraged students and practitioners over the years to do a period of time where you actually write daily horoscopes. Like just set yourself like some sort of challenge for maybe a week, I would say a month, but I appreciate like 12 a day for a month is a lot, but you, it brings you into this really nuanced understanding of some of those personal planet cycles and things that you wouldn't have given a lot of thought to that you realize are actually much more rare than you might have realized. Um, like it gave me, I, I did dailies. Okay, Austin, here's one for you. I don't know if I've shared this on the show. The first daily column I had was years ago. I was in Australia. I was writing for a mobile or a cell phone company back in the early days of mobile phones and horoscopes going out on them. And they wanted love themed daily horoscopes. So every day for Aries, what is their love, you know, horoscope. And I did that for three or four years, which was really intense, but it did teach me a lot. Um, But, you know, the idea of where angels fear to tread, daily horoscopes will bring you into a a whole other place. Oh, and daily love horoscopes. I, I knew when you were like, I don't even want to do dailies. I'm like, imagine doing dailies on a specific theme. Um, Right, because it's even more restricted in terms of what you can talk about or how you can contextualize things. Exactly. But it's a good teaching tool. I would love to do that sarcastically. (laughs) I think, Austin, we would love to read about your sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Not sarcastically, just brutally, honestly. You know. Oh, like like if you were to give everyone their love horoscope each day? Yeah, like, you know, it's like, oh, well... The moon is conjunct Saturn and square Mars in your seventh. Like, you know, this stirs up deep, uh, deeply felt feelings of hatred. Like, <laughs> try you know, not to I project mean, too much. Yeah. Um, like, th- I mean, that's how it would actually be. Um, or it's like, well, nothing's happening in your seventh house for a couple of years. If you're single now, get used to it. Um, <laughs> I mean, because that's that's reality, right? Well, honest, it is reality. It is, yes. It's not maybe a horoscope writing land reality in terms of <laughs> <laughs> what what people want necessarily, but it would be very honest. And sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, don't worry about this part of your life too much for a couple of years. Focus yeah. on other things. Yeah. yeah and that's actually absolutely. a genuine issue I ran into is when to be more optimistic versus when to be more realistic or, or when to talk about like difficult or negative things. That was a real issue I ran into talking about like the difficult houses, like the eighth house or the twelfth house, which are often delineated as more problematic in traditional astrology. And I found myself wanting to fall back on more modern delineations that are a little bit more like 
humanistic or or growth oriented or encouraging versus you know talking about some of the more difficult stuff that might arise with some of the other houses yeah i try to do problem solving um because if if there's a configuration that suggests that there are problems in that area of life and those problems will be intensified um i try to give people if if i can some insight into that area of life what kinds of problems tend to arise look you know like with the eighth house one of the things i see a lot um because it's other people's resources is like you know when saturn's in the eighth or something um people will get tangled up in who deserves what and how much is mine and how much is yours and you know that person owes me or this person feels like i owe them and you know i'll just point them at that and be like this is a tangly area of life that is why it is a dark house right i won't say the dark house part but this is a tangly area of life you want to be you know some stuff might come up here you want to be prepared to deal with that like you know just leaning into it's a problem so do problem solving rather than like oh, it might be totally awesome <laughs> I do sure. think people appreciate the honesty and it's if something difficult, you know, because there are configurations astrologically that create stress or tension or discord, if you like. So at least being able to say, you know, this, you know, tense aspect is going to show up in your career. So don't overreact if your boss, I don't know, does something, you know, yells at you or something. Yeah. Um it, it at least gives people a little bit of preparation and like, oh, just cue in about these things there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really important and relevant because that actually came up this month. I think I for like Aries rising where Mars is going retrograde and stationing direct towards the end of August in their 10th house. And one of my delineations was like strife or conflict with at work within the context of your career or with superiors. And that seems like a pretty straightforward delineation to me. But at the same time, I, I wonder... If somebody somebody might read that that doesn't doesn't have any background in astrology, and if it will unnecessarily freak somebody out, you know, some, sometimes that's some of the things that have come up that I've started to think about in in doing this. Yeah, yeah, but well, and so one way to do that is um, so, for example, you know, Mars regressing back into the tenth from Aries while ruling Aries, right? It's like yeah, it's coming back, so you know, it'll bring up stuff that happened or was brewing during the time Mars was in uh capricorn before but it's like you know it's on its way to direct and if you think about the lord uh so with aries right so the lord uh, ruler of aries um being exalted and in the 10th that's actually like some powerful you know that's actually a positive configuration right um like if you if you saw somebody with a chart like that you'd expect them to be a serious ass kicker um and so you know it's moving from that you know it's moving from strife into um what is probably a very positive moment of like i know exactly what i'm doing with both myself and my career and it's a bloody road but i'm i'm totally ready to walk it you know anyway that's the way i think about things well yeah cuz austin what you, what you've done is something that i would do similarly which is the mars station uh in capricorn this month it reflects back to events from may and in some ways it's that idea when mars is last in late cap um so it's sort of that idea of resolution or culmination from that time for the aries rising people at work potentially yeah and so i, I guess you know the the what we're both talking about is context like if you just say, you know, this week, uh, this week there will be strife at work 
and um your you know and your body will feel like shit too sorry well if your body <laughs> will feel terrible as well that can be totally true and accurate but if you sandwich it between the week after that which is different then like you're not you're not fudging right you're not like blurring the lines but you're just giving context so people aren't hyper focusing on like the one bad day you know we all have bad days bad weeks bad months but it's not like you know astrology tells you that nothing is forever yes that this this is the weather and the weather passes and changes yeah thank god i'm about ready i'm about ready to be done with the season <sighs> yeah let's have mars in the south node to have a bit of distance each of them back to different corners please yeah 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 we will get into that in a second. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> why don't we why don't we wrap up this intro section? We've got some um n- not news announcements. We've got some other news and announcements we need to get out of the way, and then we can move on to the forecast for this month. So one of the news and announcements is that we're actually for this month's giveaway, uh, we have a special giveaway from um Austin's wife's company, Sphere and Sundry, which I mentioned during the episode that we did earlier this month that she recently started. So uh, Sphere and Sunday Sundry produces materials for self-care and magic on rare and potent astrological elections, which are chosen in consultation with Austin. So you, you actually help her do, do some of these magical elections each month for the production of some of these um, different things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, she, uh, it's not, I'm not picking all of the elections. She picks different projects and gets inspired. And, um, then we, we, we work together to fine tune the elections and, you know, get the planetary hours and all of that is, you know, as, as, as clean and perfect as possible. Brilliant. All right. So the items are created by Austin's wife, Caitlin, following strict ritual protocols and on sympathetic herbs, uh, metals, gems, and oils. So today we're going to give away three full sets from the Aslepius series that she recently came out with, um, which Austin and I t- talked about a little bit, I think, during episode 164 when we were talking about your book. We actually talked, that was the one um, that we actually discussed, right? Yeah, we, well, we were talking about, um, we were talking about Demetra's essay, which is the, the mm. Thessalos translation, which is a translation of a book of uh, astro- Hellenistic era astrological herb magic, which claims transmission from Asclepius as part of its formula. And that was, I think, part of the inspiration for Kate to uh, to do an Asclepius series, working with... Um, so Asclepius is obviously not a planet, <laughs> but <laughs> but the, um, you know, for the, for the Greeks... Um, our constellation of Ophiuchus was Asclepius. He's the, you know, Asclepius is the god of medicine. And so that the, you know, the, the guy handling the snake, that's the single snake that you see wound around the staff for the medical symbol. And so we've been reading some Bernadette Brady on the, the chief star, one of the chief stars in uh, Asclepius uh, or Ophiuchus, which is Russell Hogg. And she'd found it to be um, strongly related to healing talent and interest in natal uh, natal charts and even though it's not one of the fixed stars which is in the short list for magic like the bohemian stars it was uh it was an experiment kate wanted to do and so it was the moon uh, the moon on russell hogg etc cetera, etc cetera. and it ended up being really good the stuff is so for lack of a better term healy um <laughs> and, and it's 
um, it was, it came, it came into, I'm really glad she did that, ex, that experiment because, uh, I've definitely needed some Healy over the last month uh, and it's been really good. I, it, it was, um, I think it worked better. The material ended up being way more potent than either of us expected. Brilliant. All right. Well, we're going to give away three full sets from that Asclepius series. And the set includes incense, anointing oil, bath salt, uh, ritual salt, and a spray in addition to instructions for um, the use and a ritual for healing and purification called the triple purification of Asclepius. And the the value of the set is $260 per full set. So we're going to give that away to uh, three lucky patrons on the $5 and $10 tier who support the Astrology Podcast each month as a sort of thank you as part of the giveaway that we do each month. Um, for those looking to get their start with planetary magic or just magic in general, Sphere and Sundry is a great place to start because all of the items come with directions, prayers, and suggested timings for working. So the site also features a lot of useful information about remediation for natal placements and transits, so you should check out uh, and learn more about it at spheresundry.com. Cool. Yeah, Kate, All right. Kate's well, been on fire. She's put out so much well-written material in such a short period of time. I'm um it's it's kind of nice from a partnership perspective cuz I've like taken a step back and been less productive and it just happens that she's been on fire for the entire time that I'm like sleepy and tired and sad. <laughs> yeah, she's been killing it. I love some of the articles she that really she's been putting has. up on the website, as well as some of the other social media stuff on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so people should definitely check out the website, and you'll see a lot of the different offerings and other things available there. Uh, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'll do. I'll announce the winners for that through Patreon uh, in the next day or two. So keep an eye out for that in the announcement for the release of this episode. All right. So other news and announcements before we move on. Kelly, do you have anything? Uh, two things quickly. I will be in Sydney at the end of August where I'm teaching a one-day workshop on traditional health and medical astrology. So for intermediate students that are in Sydney and want to learn about health and wellness as well as self-care and things like illness, tens and tendency, tendencies and trends uh, in the birth chart, come along uh, to that workshop at the end of August. And my next group mentoring starts early September. So for anyone who is either one of my students or wants to join the group mentoring program, we have a relatively small group. So we are capped at 20 and we meet once a month to uh, chart chat, basically you get the charts in advance and then we go through how we would approach them. Our September focus is timing trends. So if you'd like to brush up or practice some of your timing techniques in a group mentoring context, you're welcome to join us in September. Brilliant. Awesome. And Austin, what do you have going on? Um, I'm teaching one class in August. I'm teaching my class on fixed stars, which is an introduction to fixed stars and how to use them. And it, uh, I, and then I deal with not all of the stars in the sky, <laughs> obviously, but I go through the, um, you're I not go going to the... speak for a week just on the fixed stars. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, I do go through the entire Bohemian list as well as the four Royal stars. I figured I was like, uh, what do I do for a set? And I was like, I can't ignore the Royals and I can't ignore the Bohemian list. And so there's, yeah, that's a, it's a discussion of how to use, uh, how to use the fixed stars. And there's, it is not an explicitly astromagical class, but the discussions of the stars includes 
a description of what Agrippa says they're good for, for example, for a talisman. And I use that, um, uh, I use that to contribute to some of the delineation material, like different angles on that star, right? So if we're looking at um, uh, Regulus, for example. So, you know, Ptolemy says this about Regulus uh, in a magical context, um, uh, you know, as a, in a magical context, Agrippa says this. It's also worth noting that this star is what indicates this lunar mansion, and this lunar mansion is about this. Just, you know, bringing in different material, getting different angles, trying to understand the star by looking at it in different contexts. Awesome. That sounds great. A lot of people are always asking me about fixed stars. That is actually something I have not done an episode of the podcast on yet that I meant to at some point. So Ooh, maybe you should get you should get Bernadette Brady. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. She's the star lady. She is phenomenal. Yeah, we did an episode last month or last year, one year ago from I think this month on the eclipses, eclipses. which is the other big thing that she's known on is her work on eclipses and yeah. uh, the Saros cycles. But fixed stars is like the other major things that she's known for. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I find her work on the fixed stars to be invaluable. Um, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I, a lot of the other sources seem like a giant mess to me when I compare them with Brady's work. Her book on fixed stars, the Brady's book of fixed stars? Yeah. Yeah. It's- there's, a, there's a clarity. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> got all of your books just in immediate reaching distance of the, the important ones. Yeah, I uh, have just, just, a tiny speak- office. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In terms of what I have within reach. Yeah, I'll, I'll second you on that Speaking one. Speaking of that, in terms of books that I've got. <laughs> <in reach. laughs> Austin, your book is by my bedside. Um, so that it's a book off. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that we all have like each other's books and other paraphernalia within reaching distance at any time totally i have a tiny office and i have a bookshelf with maybe about 50 books on it but they're the books that i use all the time right yeah i have um i have a milk crate (laughs) with with um uh with like what i'm working with right now and so there uh, there are about 10 books in there so many good ones i've got a whole i've got a whole shelf just behind the camera that has about 20 books I think astrologers have always, that's one of the things that unites astrologers, astrologers and their books. Like Demetra always talks about that because it's true even historically in the tradition as well, because that's how astrology is transmitted. So one of the ways that it's transmitted is through books and translations and writings. And so astrologers have always like had their books as like a major thing involved with their study. Um, and it's something that all astrologers can kind of relate to in, in different traditions. We're basically yeah, book nerds. Right. Astrologers are basically book nerds. Yeah, um, I don't even know where we're right. going for the. Well, we yeah, I know, so I know where book. I know where I was going. Oh, we were giving away Kate's wonderful products. No, 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 no. no. We were we were gonna. Um, I was gonna. Oh, it's so hard not swearing. Um, I was gonna give you some stuff. Some excellent about, stuff <laughs> about um not having a book that Chris and I can hold up. Where's the book, Kelly? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's true. Why don't I have my own book? Well, I confess to you the reason why, Austin. Um, but you will be happy to know, and maybe my clients are less happy to know, but I have started just trimming down my consultation hours for the second half of the year. Because as you guys both know, writing a book takes a huge amount of time. And uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to do many other things with my time with astrology. But 
I have to make adjustments for book creation. Even Demetra was giving progressions book. Yeah, I'd like to start with that just to get that out, and then there'll probably be, as you guys probably have the idea of, you know, there's four or five because I mean, when you teach astrology a lot, you get used to. Um, how you like to explain things or the kind of references you want to provide for students. So a lot of it would be uh, that sort of accessible, practical space. Um, Yeah. And with the blend of, yeah, we're talking to people in the 21st century, but how can we use some of the older techniques? So yeah. Thanks Austin for giving me stuff. Everybody loved that. Still one of my most popular episodes was the secondary progressions episode we did earlier this year. So I know, that's going to become a classic whenever you do come out with it. Thank you. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of stuff on it. I mean, I was 18 when I read Stephen's book, The Changing Sky, and I haven't seen anything better come out since. Like I'm still using that as a, you know, a resource reading guide for students. Bernadette Brady's book, um, The Eagle and the Lark, they're the two uh, books that I use as reference for that. But I would do things a little bit differently. Of course, you know, we all put our own kind of angle on it. So um, yeah, yeah, it's weird with there's some techniques like that where even though everyone uses it, like there's not a lot of books on the topic. Like Sinistry, that was the last Same episode thing. I did, is another one. Uh, but this book by John Green, I wasn't just this is his book. Uh, Do you love me? The Astrology of Relationships, really good book on Sinistry. Interesting shortcut he took to doing it that I forgot because he originally studied with and, and was a tutor at the Center for Psychological Astrology. A large part of the book is actually like transcripts from a workshop that he gave that he then edited and then, you know, basically published at that point. And I forgot that a lot of the Center for Psychological Astrology books are like that, where you can read the interaction between him and like sort of like dialoguing with the audience and taking their questions. And that's kind of a really smart way to like get out sort of a book relatively quickly on a topic is to do an edited transcript of like a a presentation that is yeah, well, yes that is that is a great idea <laughs> i've been working the, on that uh, for about that seven there, years it's like um there's some precedent for that you know in terms of literary style right there's a lot of that in the um uh the brihad parashara horashastra it's a dialogue between the teacher um and a student there's uh the uh got uh, the corpus hermeticum is a dialogue that like, you know, they're mythical dialogues, but I don't know if one would be comfortable assuming a mythical role. But um, yeah, dialogue, you know, dia- dialogue as text has been a thing for a long time. And it's it, you can do things with it that you can't do with like straight prose or essay. I, I would love that, actually, if you adopted that as a literary conceit, Kelly, of having like a revealed wisdom about um secondary progressions and it's like your dialogue with hermes of how you learned uh this technique and you should be lecturing yeah or you can have hermes asking you questions oh right i'm giving him information. <laughs> okay well that's probably not the style that i'll go for i could <laughs> i mean i could try it as a writing practice but no don't hold your breath waiting for that one it'll be right. a little more uh less mythical but hopefully really practical Good. Yeah. We're looking looking forward to it. All right. Shall we? We're we're only like a, an hour into this episode, so shall we transition into talking about the forecast for August? Well, if there, you don't think it's premature, <laughs> we don't want to. I mean, rush it is a little things. early, but 
But, I mean, there is a mild segue here on the fixed stars to the full moon at the end of August, but we would have missed a bit in between. Maybe we'll save it. Yes. And and actually, let me – one of the things that's funny is usually because I only create the artwork for the forecast episodes usually – after we've recorded it, uh, when I'm in the process of trying to like post the actual finished episode. But this month, because I did the horoscopes yesterday, I actually created the artwork first. So let me share the Planet Watcher calendar for August. Is this showing up on your screens? Yep. Yes. Yep. Okay. So there it is. So this is the uh, Planet Watcher sort of snippet from the Planet Watcher calendar for August. I like By the way, that. Planet Watcher calendar, you can find that on... Um, Amazon, and I've had to drop the prices radically because basically we're more than halfway through the end of the year. So if you want to get some cool astrology calendars still, uh, do a search for Planet Watcher Calendar 2018 or Astrology Calendar Posters or whatever it's called, and you'll find like heavily discounted posters at this point. Um, anyway, this is the snapshot for August, and these are some of the major transits that we're going to be talking about today. I mean, this is pretty much all of them. Are there any that are not depicted here that you guys notice that are missing? Uh, I mean, there are some details, but this is, you know, this is a good overview. Yeah. Sure. It's, so it's just to maybe run through them really quickly, got the we've got uh, Venus ingressing into Libra on the 6th. Uh, the next day on the 7th, Uranus stations retrograde in early Taurus at two degrees of Taurus. Then a few days later, we have a solar eclipse in Leo on the 11th. Uh, the following day on the 12th, we have Mars which retrogrades back into Capricorn from Aquarius. Uh, a week later, we have Mercury, which has been retrograde in Leo all month, stations direct in Leo around the 19th. Uh, the same day, we have transiting Jupiter, exactly trying, uh, transiting Neptune from the water sign Scorpio and Pisces. Then a few days later, we have the Sun ingressing into Virgo on the 23rd, as it always does roughly around the same time of the year. Then we have a Pisces full moon on the 26th, and finally Mars stations direct at 28 degrees of Capricorn on the 27th of August. And those are the major transits for the month. Yep. So that's it, folks. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for coming. We can all go home. That's a really good visual, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's helpful. And I incorporated that into most of my video horoscopes yesterday, which is why I have it. Um, But I thought it would be useful sort of foundation or starting point for us totally uh, in moving forward so let me pull up for those watching the video version of this episode the actual chart for right now and for august so here's the chart from solar fire that i usually use using my hellenistic page layout from solar fire this is everyone always asks for some reason people don't know but this is using the astrology program called solar fire and you can get a 15% discount on the program if you use the promo code AP15 when you purchase it from the company that, that produces it called Astrolabe. So here's the chart for right now, but let's go forward and start with the beginning of the month on August 1st. Bam, fireworks. What are those? <laughs> Mars square Uranus. <laughs> oh, you're right. So the month yep. opens like right from the start with an almost exact, it is exact, that very first day of August with the Mars-Uranus square from Mars being at two degrees of Aquarius to Uranus at two degrees of Taurus. Yeah. And this is the second square. The first one was back mid-May um, when Mars first ingressed into Aquarius and Uranus first ingressed into Taurus. Um, so there is sort of a an energetic resonance, if you will, but this is the, we, we talked earlier in the year about 
Mars making three squares to Uranus as part of this uh, retrograde process. So we've got the second one coming up at the beginning of August. It's not the same energy as the eclipse at the end of July, but it's definitely um, a combustible, you know, electric destabilizing, if you like, kind of energy because Mars and Uranus together are definitely shaking things up. Things are not, they don't have that permanent quality. It's like everything is in flux. Right, definitely. You've got the sort of severing and separating energies of Mars or sometimes strife and conflict types sort of energy of Mars that's coming into a hard aspect and creating tension with the sort of explosiveness or unexpected disruptions that are typically indicated by Uranus. Your, yeah. your thoughts, Austin? Yeah, I um, I was thinking about this. I was writing about this in a daily the other day, um, and I can actually remember what I wrote for once. Um, so, you know, Uranus catalyzes, right? And so Uranus is in a position to catalyze what Mars is doing. And so one of the, you know, uh, the... Uh, ignition or an explosion when you light the firecracker is that's a that's catalyzing right and so this will definitely catalyze some explosions both personal and probably literal in the world but uranus is also in a position here to catalyze some of the insights into whatever whatever process this mars retrograde has led people into uh, in you know catalyzing insights about personal power the right the use and misuse of personal power, you know, what's worth fighting for, what's not worth fighting for. You know, Uranus is big on, um, you know, my pet phrase is breakdowns and breakthroughs. Um, and I, with Mars, I would add blow ups. Mm-hmm. Um, this is definitely not like a great configuration to have a sensitive conversation around difficult topics unless you absolutely have to. You know, it's very... You know, I think this might, I can definitely see it catalyzing separations, Chris, like you said, both Uranus and Mars like separations. Um, mm. And so, you know, and some of those withdrawals or severances may be temporary. Some of them, you know, some of it might just be getting some space. Some of it might be more permanent. I would also add that, you know, if you look at where the moon is, um, so the aspect is exact on the first, but two days later yes. on the third, the moon conjoins Uranus and squares Mars while it's still very tight. So it's, you know, it's over those couple days that, you know, uh, that it'll be um, quite active. It's a very Uranus start to the month, even though, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about the eclipse, but yeah, the the moon activation in this square. I like that word catalyzes, Austin. Yeah. Thanks. That's one of my go-tos for Uranus. Yeah, I like it. You, you can yeah, steal it too, good. Chris. And it's not just that the square is happening, but it's like Uranus is already slowing down and is only a week away from stationing retrograde. Yeah. So there, so so it's like Uranus is actually getting amped up just in and of itself at the same time, even if it wasn't squaring Mars, but it happens to be doing both. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that term amped up. You know, when a planet approaches a station, it feels like it's gathering a charge. Um, mm. You know. You know, it, it's 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 brewing something, and so when it gets pinged, when it's in that um, charge state, you usually get more out of it. It's sort of like one big, you know, one last thing to say before turning retrograde. This Mars Uranus station, or sorry, Mars Uranus configuration. Right, definitely. Um, and it seems like one of the things I was saying in the horoscopes is that Uranus or um, 
planetary stations, even though there is like technically a specific day in which the planet is officially moving backwards instead of forwards or or forwards instead of backwards. It's not it's not always like that exact day that the result happens, but sometimes there's kind of like an orb of a few days or even like a week on stations because they're really like slowing down and hovering around the same degree for for quite a while. Um, would you guys agree, or is that too wide? Like putting like a, a weak orb on something like a planetary station, especially for an outer planet. I think that's one hundred percent what I do, and I special attention um, to the the day of that planet, which is previous to the station director retrograde. Um, we don't. There's no Uranus day. We have a seven day week, right? But you know, for Mars, like the 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 Mar the Tuesday right immediately before the station you will feel it and same with the 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 planetary day following i wish there was a uranus day that would be great you could probably (laughs) would make timing more convenient (laughs) it would um yeah i mean i think i agree completely with the station and i think you know for something like uranus i might even use a little bit more than a week or look at you know what are the other planets that are going to trigger this outer planet Mm -hmm. as it's in its station degree uh, because they will be, you know, as you said, your image, Austin, of like they're broadcasting and the other planets coming in that are aspecting them are picking up that message and carrying it forward. Yeah, totally. All right. So, yeah, so we open up the month with that Mars Uranus square. Uranus is also stationing retrograde and it turns fully retrograde by uh, the 7th of August. And this is the first time, as I said earlier, that Uranus's actually station made any sort of station since when, since it moved into Taurus back in May for the first time. Yeah, it's and this station is going to be station yeah. direct. Say that again. It's stationing direct at two. Retrograde. retrograde. I beg your pardon. Sorry, retrograde. Sorry, uh, my right. my brain is so, retrograde. No problem. Uh, and so this is like a long-term transit in terms of Uranus going through Taurus over the course of the next six or seven years. But I think this is actually really important in terms of people getting a sense what that Uranus transit is going to be about over the course of most of the next decade. Because even though the ingress of Uranus was important uh, back in May, and that's when all the astrologers were talking about it, this being the first time it's stationed in that sign, I think a lot of people are going to start to get some sense for some of the themes that are going to sort of grow and develop and eventually start to snowball as Uranus moves further and further into that sign as a result of this station, especially within a, like a week before or a week after this station, just because, yeah, those stations can be so important and so much of an intensification of the planet. I think it would be good for people to just pay attention to any themes, even if they're very subtle or very low-key type themes that are occurring in their life at that time because of the potential for that to snowball as Uranus moves further and further into the sign. Yeah, I think that's a good point. This is the first time Uranus is stationed in Taurus in many decades. Right, in something like, what is it, 84 years or something like that? 84 years, yeah. Brilliant. All right. So um, that's the first, that's happening already in the first week. And right around the same time, we have one of the first... Um, planetary ingresses that takes place this month, which is the ingress of Venus, which takes place on August 6th, where it moves from Virgo into Libra. And Venus is going to spend the rest of the month transiting through Libra for you know the next three weeks of, of August on into early September. 
Yeah. Well, and this is a this is a really nice thing. It's a benefic in the sign that it rules. The only thing is that the that um I don't know, that like Venus in Libra, social lubrication, even just like a just a slightly better feeling about everything. <laughs> um that's gonna be a little bit delayed because Venus has to square Saturn um upon entering Libra. And Saturn's only at three degrees. And so it, you know, Venus will get past Saturn in a couple days. But it's the it, it, there, you know, the first thing Venus does is make that square to Saturn, which is, you know, bringing up some not necessarily soothing or pleasant um, uh, uh, issues or bringing a not so soothing quality to things emotionally. Right. Because Saturn is Saturn's great for lots of things. Saturn's not great for ease, luxury, leisure, lubrication, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's funny that it runs into that wall almost immediately after ingressing into into Libra there in the first few days. Yeah, that totally ruined a good uh, Venus election that um, Kate and I were looking at because the moon conjoins uh, Venus and Libra, but it's still only cleared it by about five degrees. It'll probably feel fine as a transit, but it's not unacceptable for an election. Oh, yeah, there yeah, it is the around like August 14th. Yeah. yeah. No, no Venus Saturn squares in my Sat in my Venus. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Saturn is such an inhibiting quality that it is going to almost overshadow the potential of what Venus in Libra uh, could offer, but not for the whole time. I think, you know, she does get far enough into Libra that we start to get some of the sweetness and that sense of the lubrication or the idea of uh, collaboration, being able to find common ground or agreement. Yeah. And it's, you know, one thing to uh, remember is that it's not just Venus and Libra. What we're talking about here is the transition of Venus from the sign in which it's fallen yeah. to a sign where it's super strong. And so, you know, part of the part of a lot of July, in addition to spotlight it, you know, in addition to having some very difficult things spotlight, like Mars retrograde and a gnarly eclipse and all that, there's Venus is also was uh, was also in Libra or excuse me, Venus is also in Virgo, which meant that um, you know, Venus was in the sign where she has the toughest time. And so the way that I experience that and the way I see a lot of people experiencing that is that it's just harder to find um, joy in things. It's like harder to appreciate things. It's harder to find common ground with people. All of those Venusian functions are just like the there's just not much fuel for that. Or you can find it, but you got to kind of work through some stuff. Um, and so this is Venus going from a place where it's tricky um, to, you know, get to the good Venus good stuff to a place where it's, uh, you know, uh, abundant and naturally provided. Definitely. I like that. So all of this is happening, or at least that's starting off in the first part of the month when we get that ingress of Venus into Libra. Um, just a few days after that, we already have another major. It's one of our, our major events of the year, which is a solar eclipse that occurs in Leo on August 11th. So this is the continuation of the series that we had that was really prominent a year ago that all the astrologers were talking about and that, that you know we focused on a lot, which was the uh, great American eclipse that occurred that was actually visible over the United States about a year ago now. And this is the continuation of the same eclipse series where uh, we actually have a solar eclipse at 19 degrees of Leo that takes place 
uh on august 11th right yeah it's uh it's the night uh it's like so it calendar date is the 11th right but it's um it's actually the uh, the 11th is a saturday but it's actually going to be occurring friday night if that makes sense so if you you know uh, it's not going to happen on saturday on night. saturday it's, yeah right it's going to happen the night of the 10th when it becomes you know after it becomes the 11th to be very explicit and specific yeah, yeah. well you know um when you write dailies, you got to decide which day to talk about things. Totally. About. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, if you're going to say, look up tonight, you need to say that on Friday, not on Saturday, because you will have missed it. Right. Yeah. There's a difference between like, uh, you know, the experience of days and their uh, numeralization into calendar dates. Um, but yeah, uh, like you're, so this is actually, so this is um, another solar eclipse in Leo, like last year. And this is also, um, what, what's worth noting, this is the last solar eclipse in the um in the the leo aquarius series right because we have one more there's only one more eclipse in the in the uh, leo aquarius series which began at the beginning of 2017 um and there's one more which is at the in the very beginning of at the very beginning of the of 2019 and that's a there's a full um a full eclipse. A full moon. <laughs> uh, there is the, there is a lunar eclipse in Leo, yeah. and that's it. And then we're done with the the uh, the Aquarius Leo series. And so this is the last solar, is what I'm yeah. saying, right? Because the no nodes are getting so early in Leo and Aquarius at this point that they're getting ready to move out, uh, move back into Cancer and Capricorn, and you can only have eclipses in certain signs when the nodes are moving through those signs. Right. And so the one, the ones coming up in six months are that uh, transitional set where the solar will be in Capricorn, but the lunar will be in Leo. And then it'll move in to, you know, being more solidly just Cancer Capricorn for all of next year. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and that actually raises the point that we actually scheduled this episode so that we could do it just after the lunar eclipse, the major lunar eclipse that just occurred a few days ago in Aquarius. Um, I don't, Aside from it being like really striking and, and visible in the sky, I don't really have any commentary on that so far. But do you guys have any anything that you noticed worth mentioning? Well, everything is on fire. Like Europe is on fire. Um, large parts of uh, the West Coast are on fire. I mean, the West Coast is always on fire, but Sweden is not usually on fire. Nor, nor is Greece. This is um, I was listening to the news, and I believe that the Fire in Greece, or what was said in the news, this is the economist, was that the fire, the fires in Greece are the worst fires since the end of World War II. Yeah. Mm. It's wow. almost like the full moon, or it's almost like the lunar eclipse was conjunct Mars, almost. which is red and considered to be hot and destructive. Yeah. And there's a note in like the Australian press that bushfire season has come forward by two months. So even though it's a little early in Australia for fire season, it's already happening there too. Uh, personally, I, I definitely felt the Mars South Node, a concept that I've really been wrestling with since Mars came into the sign of the South Node Aquarius in an air sign is this idea of mental angst or kind of like, angry thoughts or dark thoughts, um, like a heavier mental energy. 
And I definitely experienced a little bit of that peaking last week with the eclipse, obviously so close to the South Node. And uh, there were a few discussions on Twitter around that as well. So that idea of just everything feeling a little bit electric and fried or frazzled and within, I think, an hour of the eclipse peaking, that energy started to calm down, even though I'd felt it very strongly for four or five days leading up to it. Yeah, I there was um there was a, a quality of um growing tension for me. There was a quality of growing and tension and angst leading up to the eclipse and then the eclipse was a little bit of a release. Um I also did some uh, I had a little remediation ritual protocol thing that I did based on some insights that I had the day before the eclipse that worked um really well. I actually feel a lot more at peace with the things that are not at peace. <laughs> that that's beautiful. Um, but yeah, I mean, then that's part of the South node is the South node releases. Yes. Um, and, you know, release, sometimes what is released can be very destructive, um, but it's still release. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a sun South node, so I like the South node. The South node stuff feels good for me. I no, because I have friends and clients and don't only look at my own chart that not everybody experiences it that way. <laughs> yeah. So you like letting go of things, Austin? You're not a hoarder? No, I'm not. I'm definitely not a hoarder. I like, I like the like letting go of thinking that, I don't know, um, reality is so terribly important and my feelings are important and everybody, everything's so important. You know, there's a, there's definitely like, um, um, uh, uh, a little bit of an ego dissolution thing that comes with the South node. It like lets you, lets things drop away. Um, and I like that. It feels good to me. It feels like, like, um, um, how should we put this? Um, like returning to the silky void and like floating there a little bit. It's like, oh yes. This is the ground of being, yeah. and this is peaceful. And much arises from this and much returns to this, but this is the ground of being, and this feels good. But I don't know, you know, not many people are comforted by the idea of silky voids. No, that might be a slightly unusual, but I, I, I mean, the South Node, I think I have Mercury on the South Node, and uh, I like the idea of letting go. I'm definitely an overthrower outer of things. That's not even a word, but hopefully it conveys my meaning. Uh, and I always think about that South Node from that Buddhist non-attachment perspective of why are we holding on? In the end, it all doesn't matter anyway. So just offer it up or put it back out there and keep going, basically. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you're, I mean, you were born with uh, when there was a solar eclipse on the South Node. Yes, so, I mean, you're certainly related, but you and I both have stuff on both sides That's of the node. That's true, we do. And, yeah. And so, like, North Node Saturn, pro perhaps the reason I like release is I hold on really tight and, you know, um, to Saturn stuff. You know, I'm like, no, I got to do this and this has got to happen and, you know, build myself a little, little cathedral slash prison. Yeah, the South. So, I don't know. Did you notice anything, Chris, with the, with the nodes? Austin and I obviously have some commonalities. Yeah, I mean, I noticed some letting go stuff that was kind of interesting, just sort of going along with that. But one of the things that always frustrates me is that I know it's through like consultations and like seeing clients over like the next few weeks and looking at some individual stories where you hear the details of people that were hit 
really specifically or really closely by that transit that you'll see some of the most striking manifestations. And one of the things that's annoying is that sometimes it's not until a long time after that that you'll like have a, a consultation with somebody where it really lined up closely with their birth chart, and then you'll see like the perfect manifestation of what that transit was about. But some of those stories you don't learn until a long time later. Like I was just watching some like YouTube always recommends random videos to me, and it recommended one about like a, a jogger that was like randomly killed a couple of years ago. And I looked up the chart and she was Saturn in Sagittarius and she was Saturn returning. And Mars, it happened basically like two hours after Mars ingressed into Sagittarius, where it conjoined her natal Saturn at the same time while she was having a Saturn return. So that was that big Mars-Saturn conjunction in Sagittarius that we were talking about a lot on the forecast a couple of years ago. Uh, but it was something where it, it manifested in a very specific and very like drastic way in somebody's life. But we never could have known that until you know a long time later when I happened to stumble across it. I feel like there's there's just like hundreds and thousands of stories like that where if we were aware of them we'd have a lot of really interesting things to talk about but you know just a day or two later you often you know have not seen all of those stories yet. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so that's one of the things that's interesting though when people write into us and so I'd love to hear if there's any listeners that have had any interesting manifestations of either observations they've seen or specific stories in their personal lives about that lunar eclipse that occurred just a few days ago on the 27th and how that's manifested in your life or if you've seen anything interesting because sometimes through like sort of crowdsourcing those stories amongst astrologers that's the way that we can learn the best as a community community about how those things work out uh, so uh one of my on that note one of my uh uh patreon supporters i've got a little little forum we talk about stuff um said that uh she owns a, a laundromat and there were like huge problems with the plumbing and whatnot on the lunar eclipse. And she's like, that has only happened once before. And it was on the previous lunar eclipse. Super interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes it's literal. Yeah. I, you know, I remember. Um, but yeah, like that flooding can definitely be in water damage can totally be a lunar eclipse thing. If it's strongly connected to the fourth and other things are set up. Right. I had that happen one time on a lunar eclipse. It was a lunar eclipse uh in gemini on the south node um on my moon and um kate and i's apartment flooded very badly and we lost uh, a lot of our possessions were destroyed that's wow. horrible um and uh in the chat because we've got a live yeah. chat going for uh patrons of the astrology podcast who are sharing some stories and veronica uh gladhill's actually got one in a really interesting literal one where she says one of my friend's husbands had Mars in the south node in the first house, and on the day of the conjunction, he discovered he has a giant intestinal parasite. So, yeah, that's that's very very literal manifestation of of that transit. Uh, that's a good one. Thanks for sharing that. Wow, well, that that's such an unpleasant discovery, and yet so much better than not knowing, right? Because now you can get rid of it, right? And yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I always it always makes me laugh. Like astrologers, sometimes their first reaction is like always like, wow, that's actually a really interesting manifestation, a very literal manifestation of that transit. And then the second reaction is, you know, oh, that's that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, but oh yeah, I, like a, I'm a human being. I forgot for a second. Yeah. Well, no, it's the almost like scientific or like empirical side of of just witnessing the astrology in action and seeing a very specific 
manifestation that completely fits the archetype and the, the just how interesting that is that is like your initial impulse as an astrologer it's yeah, it's funny, right? So, I, go ahead, I was just going to say totally. Um, I mean, the amount of times a client will be like, yeah, I decided to break up or what have you. And I'll be like, excellent. Yes. And then I'll be like, oh, no, that's horrible that you had to break up, but it's spot on with this astrological transit or progression or whatever it happens to be. And and look, I mean, if you've been in a difficult relationship, sometimes getting out's the best thing because more often than not, the follow-up response from the client is, no, no, it was a really good thing. Um, so yeah, I totally get it's the, it's the, the, um, instinctive response is like the astrologer researcher versus then the humanity of that would be horrible to go through kind of thing. Well, then there's the right, reverse, well, well, right? Where a friend tells you something you're like, oh my God, that's terrible. And then you're like, I wonder yeah. what the chart looks like. Yes. Right. Well, and also it's not just completely external either. And it's not just astrologers like, like gawking at or immediately not having empathy or something. But even in, in our personal lives, oftentimes the astrologers will immediately be like, even if you have like a really terrible or traumatic event, you'll think about the astrology right away and you'll be like, well, that's at least very good manifestation of that transit. Or you'll kind of be impressed by your own, how the astrology has worked out very literally um, in addition to whatever you're going through at the time in terms of processing and dealing with the actual hardship itself. It's like the constellation constellation prize of uh, this is a horrible thing, but at least I understand what this astrological stuff means. Right. Definitely. All right. So um, yeah, so that's a, a lot of the stuff going on with the eclipses. So we're finally going to be well, so out of eclipse season. We didn't really no. talk about the one in the, the solar in August. Right. Yeah. We, we fell back on again, like talking about the we have to talk lunar about eclipse that. that we've been talking about since December. Um, so this, yeah, solar eclipse in Leo. And this one's interesting because it's actually complemented by a Mercury retrograde that's happening at the same time in the same sign in Leo that's also in effect for most of the month. And Mercury doesn't station direct until uh, later in the month, I believe around the 19th, when it stations direct at uh, 11 degrees of Leo. So during the solar eclipse, you know, at least in terms of if if that's hitting an important part of your chart, or if you have placements in Leo or the middle of the fixed signs, you're kind of getting hit by the eclipse happening there, but also Mercury retrograde happening, sort of simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, fortunately, we did have the we do have the uh, Kazemi point or the inferior conjunction of Mercury and the Sun right before the eclipse and that usually helps get a little bit of clarity that usually helps with getting a little bit of clarity on whatever confusions or uh, uh rearrangements are necessitated by the mercury retrograde it's something yeah it looks like that happens on august 8th at 16 degrees of Leo. yes mm -hmm. in my uh horoscope videos yesterday one of the things i was talking about it's a realization that I've had about Mercury retrogrades over the past year or so and going through some new ones. And one of the things is that it often forces you, like you'll do something at the beginning of the retrograde, but for some reason it'll get messed up or it'll turn out that there's a, a mistake or an error with it and you'll have to redo it or do the same thing over again. But usually it ends up being constructive or there's some sort of like positive overall experience that you get out of it because typically when you're forced to do the same thing over again a second time, you oftentimes will do a better job the second time than you did the first time around just because you have more experience with it. So it ends up being, although frustrating and kind of annoying initially, 
uh, sort of productive overall in the long term, just because you get better at doing whatever it is that you have to do twice and you sort of grow from it as a person as a result of that typically. Yeah. 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 Is that like, that's a pretty, um, is that a very cliche or like obvious, like Mercury retrograde type type insight to, to provide? This is stuff you've guys have written for probably a million times, right? Yes. Um, you're right. I I wouldn't necessarily have added personal growth (laughs) as a result, but I mean, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, I'm trying to put the positive spin on it, which you were doing earlier with your, like, uh, you know, how to, how to put a positive, useful spin on this instead of just saying, this is going to be annoying. You're going to have to like make a mistake and then repeat it over again. And that's the end of the story. But at least in some instances, let's say perhaps you, you grow from it or learn from it as a person. Yeah. Or you, you, you learn from it, right? Like, like you said, like the second time you do something, you have more experience than the first time. Right. So, you know, there's, there's value definitely in um, being forced to dig into something to solve a problem. You usually have to learn more about a situation than if you didn't have to fix the problem. Like if your audio setup was malfunctioning, you have to go in and all look at all of the settings and tweak this and you learn stuff. Yeah. You, you learn what it's like you learning what you didn't know you didn't know, but and then yeah. Also having an opportunity where like repetition is a way to build skill. And because we're talking about Mercury retrograde, repetition is usually, uh, a, it, it's a helpful thing for building competency with whatever it is you happen to be doing. So yeah, that's. Right. And sometimes like failure or hardship or having to do it over again, because that is like an annoying or a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a frustrating process that feels like a hardship at the time, but you end up sometimes at least as a process of repetition, gaining greater experience as a result. Yeah, definitely. It's annoying because it takes more time, but often the end result of going over something brings you to a deeper understanding of it. It's frustrating in the moment because you think, I wish I could have been more efficient with that but we have plenty of time to get efficient at the end of the month when we get into our virgo season sure if you like hashtag virgo season right hashtag virgo season all right so uh, this solar yes. eclipse austin is solar not going to let us leave so, without discussing it go austin I, right we're trying well, very I mean, hard so it's part of a series so that was the first point you brought up austin that this is not just the end this is the end or it's it's one of the last ones in this series that's been going on for over a year now so maybe that's the the first thing we need to say to help contextualize it is this is part of a continuing process that keeps happening in six month increments that started you said the first set was in early January of two thousand seventeen right I think it was February of twenty seventeen but yeah um, yeah it was you know first first quarter of twenty seventeen was when we got our first eclipse on the leo Aquarius axis um and so just a little bit about like north node in you know north node in leo because this is a north node. Uh, this eclipse is off the North Node. Um, I'm I, I, uh, in thinking about this. Um, I'm remembering what I wrote about it last year, and I'm like, oh yeah, that. Why did I forget that? Because a lot of what I've been seeing with North Node and Leo, and with the Sun on that, is uh, ego issues. There's a lot of like. There's a lot of like. Uh, I I want to be seen as this. I want to get credit for um, for who I am. Um, there's a lot of and then. Uh, sort of how people, the image, the, there's this sort of sandwich of what is the image I am projecting? What, how are people seeing me? And then what is the image I have of myself? And 
this seems to be bringing up those three layers as well as how um, harmonious or inharmonious their relationships are. You know, am I like thinking people are seeing me this way, but they're really seeing me that way? There just seems to be a lot of like ego need being seen stuff. And this, you know, because right now the sun is conjoined the the north node. Um, and so the eclipse, uh, the solar eclipse on uh, August 11th will be the, you know, putting a putting a pin in it. You know, it'll be like and that's, you know, that's what you were, you know, chewing. That's what you were chewing in your mind. That's what was kind of rolling around and that you were feeling, although more heart with Leo than mind. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've, it's definitely feeling Z. And a little bit dramatic as it is Leo. Um, so that that's some of what I'm seeing. And that's, you know, the solar eclipse. The, the solar eclipse speaks to the solar level. The lunar eclipse speaks to the lunar level. So this is the last solar eclipse um, in this series. I think if you, people look back at how has their identity changed and how have they how is the way that they see themselves and present themselves changed over the last year and a half you'll see a storyline there that's maybe difficult easy to miss if you just look at what's going on this moment or this month i see it as like a like a shedding shedding and regrowing skin you know painting and crafting and then burning masks these are really beautiful points that you're making austin around image and appearance and what is presented versus what is um, you know whether what whether it, the external represents the internal. It's it's a beautiful uh, way of thinking about it and contextualizing that it's not just the eclipse right now. Take it back to first quarter. It was I think I checked. I think it was Feb twenty seventeen was the first eclipses on this Leo Aquarius axis, and the North Node actually moved into Leo. I think it was May 2017, maybe off the top of my head. The reason that sounds right. Yeah, the reason it stands out to me is my own personal um, Leo experience is that within a week or two of that North Node moving into Leo, for the first time, if, if you've ever kind of known me in real life, I'm very relaxed about my hair in that I don't really go to the hairdresser, I don't wash my hair every three days. Like it's just, it's very wild and relaxed and casual. But for the first time ever, I actually went to the hairdresser that I had my hair dyed, got some of my greys addressed um, within a couple of weeks of the North Node going into Leo last year. I haven't done it since, you know, it was it was totally like a one-off thing, but it was sort of this interesting experiment that I had around what is it like if my hair doesn't have its greys, for instance. Um, I was also getting ready to go to my sisters my leo sisters very leo wedding and thought i should have some decent hair for the photos but it, it it's an mm. interesting little piece around you know like do you need to do this to or can you just be who you are basically and i'm relaxing into the grays now yeah, yeah and that's the thing it's like you become aware of the image that you're pre- presenting and that doesn't necessarily mean you need to change it, but a, but new mm. awareness of that. You're like, well, now this is a question rather than just something that always mm-hmm. happens that way. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to hear if anyone else had any other suitably Leo things that they're working through. And then the wrap up, because this is our last solar eclipse in Leo, which feels obviously really significant. Yeah, I think it's going to make some it's going to make some of the changes which have been ongoing for a while conscious 
Other people will be like, oh, this is part of a process that I kind of forgot was happening. Because that's the nodes, right? The nodes take a year and a half-ish to transit a pair of signs. So, you know, a transit from the nodes is longer than Jupiter. Yes. Um, and so whenever we have transits that are that long, it just becomes normal. You know, like we just like that's just life. We kind of forget, oh, this is happening because Jupiter's transiting my fifth or, you know, or whatever. And so the nodes are even longer and the eclipses, I think, take the latent significations of the, the nodes and they bring them into the foreground, you know, for a couple. Yeah. Weeks. And the other interesting point about the significance of this eclipse as maybe a, a full stop at the end of the Leo Aquarius eclipses is that between this eclipse and the next eclipse season in January of 2019, the nodes themselves will change signs. So that the next time we deal with eclipse energy, the nodes will be in Cancer and Capricorn. Um, so it, it's very much the end of that uh, Leo Aquarius trend from the nodes. Well, there's right there. There is one more eclipse, but the Leo. nodes will yeah, it's but the loop. nodes will be in Cancer Cap at the time. Yeah, it's sort of a one last thing. It's like before yes. you go, one last thing, you know, boom. And then, and that'll, yeah, that, and that'll be like the, the final thing, but I think it'll probably feel pretty complete after this one that's happening in August. There'll just be a little, you know, a little, uh, little PS, uh, <laughs> in January. PS Leo loves you. Sure. Maybe that which is initiated or like has to be initiated that's going to have long term implications will become fully, um, initiated or those seeds will be fully laid. Um, at this eclipse, especially since it's a it's a new moon solar eclipse at this time. Yeah, I well, I would say it's um, so with lunar. I I look at lunar in terms of more material and emotional, and solar in terms of uh, intelligence and ego. I think the conscious half of it will be um, uh, uh, the the conscious half of ending this process. You know, the 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 egoic as well as the intelligent um, discerning part. Um, will get dropped by the the solar this month, and then there'll be a final shift of emotions and perhaps resources, depending on the houses involved during the the lunar in six months. Definitely. Um, one of the things I noticed about eclipses is that sometimes for for like a solar eclipse, it seems like it starts or initiates a new phase in your life or a new series of activities in the house that it falls in. But oftentimes it's not like readily apparent to you at the time how important that new beginning is going to end up being until later on in retrospect. But it's something that sort of starts out slowly or sometimes has very humble beginnings, but then later snowballs into something more important. So these Leo eclipses, it always makes me think like 10 years ago, there was another set of Leo eclipses. And I always relate eclipses to the houses primarily to see like what area of the life it's developing in the person's life. And I was just like, over the summer, I started like a new relationship and it was supposed to be like this blow off relationship and neither of us thought it would be a big deal. But I happened to notice there was an eclipse happening in my seventh house. And I was like, well, that's weird because that almost implies maybe this relationship will be more important than I think it's going to be, you know, currently where neither of us are that invested in it or think it's going to last for more than a few months. And we both went into it knowing that, but then- 10 years later, I turn around and I'm still in the same relationship that started when I had that solar eclipse in Leo in my seventh house. And that's always been one of those like sort of lessons for me about what solar eclipse can sometimes do 
is sort of start or lay the foundations or the seeds for something in a certain area of your life that you don't realize is going to be as important or as long-term until you turn around in retrospect and it's something that's built or grown into something bigger sort of a few few years or a few months down the line. I remember uh, I remember looking at those eclipses with you 10 years ago. Yeah, because we were talking about it. We're like, well, that's weird. It's happening in my first house and my seventh house. And there is this other, this small thing happening, but surely that's not going to be a major deal. Yeah. Um, well, eclipses, they do have that more, I think that they're, they're tied into the longer trend. I, I think, I think maybe Austin, you sort of said this earlier, or maybe Chris, that it's not just about the eclipse right now. It's how it, it participates in an 18 month to two year period that, uh, feeds into this longer thread. And the house activation is so critical because they do get activated every nine to 10 years by the time we get the nodes reversing. Yep. Yep. Uh, side, side note or digression. Have you guys ever had anything <laughs> like that where not necessarily that you miscalled it, but that you sort of like saw something and didn't realize how significant will be. So then maybe you misjudged the significance or how major the transit was going to be until later in retrospect. I'm sure I have Nothing. no, no, no good examples jump yeah. to mind. I mean, the, the, the more common thing, of course, for astrologers, I think is the opposite, which is seeing a, a transit coming up, especially a negative one. And sometimes like over estimating how significant or how bad it's going to be, but then it comes and goes and it turns out like there's something that happened, but you got through it and it wasn't the end of the world. Yeah. I think that that's probably true with astrologers. Yes. I do have to get clear sure. on a few um, bloopers because one of the panels at SOTA, at the SOTA conference this year, they're doing a panel where they've asked a few of us to speak on when we've got it wrong and to share, you know, what we thought would happen and what actually happened and just to kind of dissect the fact that, you know, we do, we do make mistakes. So uh, I'll have some better answers on that later this year once I've pulled some research together. I think that's a great idea. Right? Like it's going to be, I'm really looking forward to it actually. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. And when is that? That's in October, right? Yeah, the Soda Conference. It's mid October, eighteenth to the twenty second of October in Buffalo, in New York. So don't come for the weather, but come for the fun and friendship. Right. Uh, if you're going for the weather, then uh, there's another conference happening in May that I think I just got the invite to it. So the Northwest Astrological Conference is happening in Seattle at the end of May in 2019, and I have to come up with lecture descriptions for it, I think in the next like 48 hours. So I'm uh, kind of scrambling here. <gasps> Shit. Thanks for reminding me. I haven't done that either. Yeah. You've got a deadline as well. Yeah. First of August. And, and you've got to be on time with Norwak because it's run by Miss Satin herself. No late submissions allowed. Uh, I forgot about that. I'm so glad you're going to be there, Chris. Are you coming, Austin? Um, I'll probably come. I totally forgot that there was that oh, deadline. Okay. Did you get you got invited to speak? Uh, I'm not even sure. Um, <laughs> why why was the deadline be relevant? If you know about the deadline, or oh, okay. it's relevant I, to you. I, then. So it's not the application deadline. No. Well, Norwalk is usually okay. an invitation. Although, if you email, like you could submit for consideration in June or July, some like when things are being considered. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I, you know, I still haven't gotten through all of my emails over the last couple of months because I got so much stuff. After you could have an act. invitation there waiting to be attended I, to. Yeah, I found invitations to a couple things um, that, you know, from like two months ago that I never responded to. I was like, oh, um, dear, dear <laughs> sir or madam <laughs> or other conscious being i uh you know i apologize for the delayed response thank you very much but this is why i stepped back from my work schedule because i was getting you know uh super behind well i'm I'm thinking about doing another uh live podcast event at the conference either as a as a workshop like a post-conference workshop or as an event one night so i think if we can get all three of us there we should we should think about that or plan on doing that and people should mark their calendars if they're interested in attending something like that, because we'll be doing it one way or another at the end of May in Seattle next year. Yeah, it'd be fun. Very cool. Cool. Um, All right. So back to the forecast. Do we have anything else to say about this this solar eclipse? Did we or we sufficiently cover the the main points? I'm good, Austin. Uh, I think Austin's taking a brief away. break running to grab He'll something. Be right back. He'll be so right back. if he's gone, then we so, can move on. He must be happy with it. <laughs> okay. Austin's gone and we'll let us Because the very next the day, eclipse. that's no, when think, Mars retrogrades back into Capricorn. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. So that's one of the major signatures this month is Mars, which stationed retrograde last month in Aquarius, officially on August 12th, retrogrades back into Capricorn where eventually it will station direct at the very end of the month at 28 degrees of Capricorn on August 28th. So this becomes one of the major signatures of the month because we have Mars basically retrograding back and then hovering around the same degrees at the very end of Capricorn for pretty much the entirety of the second half of the month. Yeah. And I think this is really going to change the astro vibe. I mean, Mars moving out of Aquarius into Capricorn, we're going from air into earth. So it's a more potentially a little bit more stable, but certainly a more grounded version of this Mars retrograde. So there is going to be a shift in the quality or the experience of the Mars retrograde, in addition to the fact that if you are using a whole sign house system in your charts, Mars is going to retrograde into a whole other house as well. So Mars is escaping the South Node influence, so that intense purification and letting go kind of subsides a bit. Mars is moving back into the sign with Saturn and Pluto, um, but Mars in Capricorn, it is bringing Mars back into its exaltation sign. So it's not that I want to suggest we all have high hopes from that, but I think it's a little bit more of a productive energy. And it's actually one of my main events for how August kind of gets split into two with the, the Mars in an air sign before the 12th and then Mars in the earth sign afterwards. I agree with yeah, the, uh, the month being split in two. It felt like that to me too when I looked over it. Yeah, and that stationing Mars, um, there's a little bit is a little bit more tense because we've got that happening in the second half of the month, and and the actual station not happening until August 28th, which is the most intense part of that transit. Um, but also the full moon in Pisces occurs right towards the end of the month as well. I believe, yes. right? Yeah, and that's a that's a relatively lovely full moon. Yeah. Especially, actually, I like the day after the full moon better than the full moon. In general or specifically this month? Why, why is that? Oh, specifically Because this of the Mars direct or why? Tell us more. Well, no, just, just um, so the full moon occurs. Oh, they're trying at, to Jupiter. Um, at, 
Yeah, the full moon occurs at three Virgo, the sun at three Virgo, and the moon full at three Pisces. And so we have a configuration to Saturn and Uranus, which are at two, um, well, they're both at two Capricorn and Taurus. But if you just look at the next day after the moon, you get like a fun moon Neptune conjunction trying Jupiter um, as far as like a nice looking day. But we should tell you that's less important than the full moon itself. <laughs> just saying it's cool. It is, no, you're day. you're totally right, Austin. I think um, actually Caitlin has already been sharing insights and reminding us on Twitter. Um, I'm totally giving a shout out to the Astro Twitter crew here. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a. It's a nice full moon, and b. The relationship to Jupiter from the full moon is definitely helpful. Um, but we wanted to talk about Mars station. Sorry, Chris. We jumped in on the lunar, the moon stuff. Um, yeah, only just of the intensification of that transit as being the most important at that time. But also, as we mentioned, I think maybe it was in the pre-show chat that, of course, in talking about this in the context of the horoscopes this month, we all have to had to remind people that Mars, because this is a retrograde, it's actually returning back to a spot in the zodiac that had already transited earlier this year. So whatever energies it does bring up at that time are probably going to be a reminder or a return to something that was sort of left unfinished from earlier this year. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So when was that that it uh, passed like First 28 half degrees of, of Capricorn? First half of May. Okay. So it looks like- You could put in the 10th yeah, or the 5th very or early something. May. Um, it's almost like a recollection, like collecting something that you kind of put on the shelf back in May or resurrecting something that you started and then got sidetracked from. Um, it's certainly that sense of uh, like reconnecting or a resonance with the early May period. And then something from back then needs to be brought forward as you go forward from this end of August period. Yeah, that's exactly right. I already know what that is for me. Um, when Mars was, when, when the Mars Saturn co-presence started in Capricorn, I was, um, I was like, uh, I was this perfectly organized, um, like perfectly organized, like, uh, how do you put it? Like, um, war machine of productivity. And I had my like schedule out in which hours on which days I was doing, which activities I was like working out like crazy, getting a bunch done. And then by the time I got into May, the wheels had kind of started to fall off. And then since then, you know, uh, since, since, since Mars's ingress into, uh, Aquarius, like I've sort of not been able or not wanted to get back into hyper productive mode, but having just passed the midway point in Mars's retrograde right now, I can totally feel that, that coming back and the, the sort of my orientation switching towards you know getting back to being a, a war machine of productivity i can feel the desire um uh, uh uh increasing already and that was exactly the timeline for that that's super interesting so hopefully that helps listeners to have a think about you know that early may period you could get as specific as looking at the capricorn house in your chart but definitely thinking about as austin was sharing maybe where the wheels fell off a little bit for you in early may that you and then the experience whatever's happened between now and then might give you a little bit of that sense of this is how i could do that better moving forward 
Yeah. Well, and like you said, Chris, like when you do thing, when you have to do it over again, you know how to do it right the next time. And I can feel that I'm like, okay, so I'm going to make these changes to my schedule and I won't try to do that, but I will do this and I'll wake up at this time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there's, uh, one of the, the, uh, I, uh, images, ideas, metaphors that I've been thinking about the Mars retrograde through, cause it kind of feels this way is this like pulling back the bow. Mm. Right. And that, and for me, especially during Mars direct stations, I'm always like, yes, I know exactly what I'm doing for the first time in four months. I, and I'm, I'm unconflicted about what needs to be done, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's like, boom, it's that release of the tension. But you, you can't, you can't fire an arrow without drawing back the bow or you can, but you just drop it on the ground or you do like a, a bad throw and it doesn't go very far. It doesn't. It's, I mean, the arrow, the setting up for a shot in tennis or golf or something. It's that idea that, you know, it's not just the striking of the ball or the releasing of the arrow. It's what you do beforehand to make sure that the ball or arrow goes to the target that you have in mind. Right. With the exact uh, angle of intersection you want, like with tennis, right? Yeah. It's not just yes. hit it. It's hit it, you know, make sure its angle and your angle are just perfect. And if you're not sure what I mean, just Google on YouTube, Roger Federer, top 10 best shots ever. And you'll um, you'll get some great example of the importance of precision with the, the direction. Yeah. I'm actually really excited about Mars stationing. Um, direct in its uh in its exaltation you know this is uh you know just to take a step back into years and this little period of history this is kind of this is a this is a tough stretch of road this end of the uh uh of this decade and you know um there uh, although objectively um the virtues of softness and hardness are not superior or inferior to each other this particular um, stretch of road or this particular period of time, especially with Saturn and Capricorn, feels like it's requiring um, some harder virtues of, out of people. There's a lot of like needing to toughen up and get through it and get it done despite the fact that, you know, history appears to be um, drunk. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know, you know, I, I feel like on one level, just Mars direct and Capricorn is like exactly what we all need. Yeah. I mean, um, for a lot of people, when I was interpreting this within the context of like the whole sign house, it was falling in. That was one of the things that um, became clear to me or that I ended up focusing on was just Mars returning back to Capricorn is not just a return of Mars in and of itself, like transiting that house in your chart, but it's returning back to a sign that already contains Saturn and Pluto. Mm. So where it's like people are already dealing with like some long-term, somewhat somewhat heavy transits through that sector of the chart or through that area of their life. But then there's a, a sudden like return back to um, and introducing or reintroducing the sort of energy of Mars for a brief period of time of a few weeks here in August and September um, which kind of like intensifies or can create some additional potential for strife and conflict in that specific area of the life. And while there might be something that's um, cathartic to, about that or where there's like a release of energy, sometimes the, the return of that energy could be um, a little bit problematic to deal with in terms of having to return back to sort of a conflict or return back to something 
that you already went through where you sort of had it out, but it's sort of left unfinished. Um, and for some people that, that might be a bit problematic in the short term. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, it's not, you know, um, from a certain perspective, you don't need to call Mars in if, um, everything's going great. Like you don't need, you know, the, uh, a planet with swords and fire. Um, <laughs> if like things are cool, right. You know, you don't need a, you don't need a sword unless somebody attacks you. Yes. Right. And so sometimes, you know, I've seen a lot of Mars uh, direct stations, they bring an end to a conflict, they finish it, but sometimes the, you know, the finishing is, and now we're definitely broken up or now we are no longer business partners. Um, you know, and that again, that's like Kelly, you were talking about, uh, we talked a little bit about this with the Mars, uh, eclipse thing mm. is like in retrospect, like it's a good thing that that relationship was severed, but in the moment, it's not super exciting and doesn't necessarily overflow with, you know, warm, luxurious feels. Not at all. And I had actually peaked, um, the period from August 21st to August 23rd, when the moon moves through Capricorn, joining the Mars, Saturn, Pluto piece as in the nice same, call. in this, and I thought of you this morning, Austin, when I was doing up my moon power dates, which are included in my stellar insights monthly, I was like, yeah, this is an unhappy moon. You know, there's, there's some frustration. She's just stuck with all three of these cronies for a few days and I think that even though there's no other thing happening there other than the moon moving through that same sign, it's just really going to bring those Mars retrograde events and that Mars at the end of Capricorn. It's really just going to bring a lot of that home for people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the questions people might ask is in terms of what house that's transiting in your chart, was there anything uh, a positive or sort of constructive confrontation that you had months ago that wasn't fully resolved that you need to return to in order to finish once and for all, or where something was left undone and still needs to be addressed by sort of returning back to it, uh, while at the same time doing so in a way that's like measured and appropriate and not going too far or not um, incurring a sort of separation in your life that's that's worse than it needs to be by sort of aggravating the situation rather than just like appropriately addressing an issue that's um, you know, tense, but that otherwise still needs to be addressed. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I think that when Mars is, especially is when any planet's in its exaltation, it, uh, it, do, it seem, it seems to do clean work where it accomplishes its planetary, uh, function very efficiently. You know, I think Mars in its exaltation is very much the clean kill or the clean break. I want to throw a classically Kelly positive out there on this. Um, because this is, this will be happening for me. I have a Capricorn 11th house and within a couple of days of Mars ingressing into Capricorn earlier this year, like mid to late March, I reconnected with two very old dear astrology friends who had kind of lost a bit of touch with. And we formed this WhatsApp group, like just a couple of days after Mars went into Capricorn in my 11th house. And we basically like have not stopped talking ever since. It's like, you know, the friendship that we first started in our twenties has just been able to reconnect, even though we're all now in different cities and some of us have got kids and all that jazz. 
And on this period in August, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, the three of us are actually all going to be meeting up together in the same city in Australia for the first time in years. So that's something that I'm super excited about. Um, and it's subjectively, I'm happy about this. It's a, it's a positive. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there that depending on your own chart, I mean, it's very specific to the house. This is happening in for me because it's 11th house and it's friendships and it's reconnecting with old friendships. So it's kind of tying in the Mars activation with the longer Saturn in cap trend. I just, I just pull all this together now. It's like, oh, that's the time I'm going up to Queensland to see Leash and Cass. So, um, that's something, you know, it doesn't, it, it could be a little bit happy for some people. Yeah. Well, um, so I would be surprised if you don't end up being like, we should do something with this. Uh, we, like there, that, it's already bit, on like, the cards. What, yeah. Right. So that's what I was talking about with like, you know, the, the war machine, right? Like, yeah. You know, like, no, this is awesome. This can kick ass. Like, and then the moving forward from there, you know, and inspecting your, you know, your tank is part of like, like, that's what the moon's doing is it's looking at all this, you know, all this stuff. It's like, no, no, this is, this thing's got legs. This is, this has power. This, this has some staying power. Cause I do think, you know, not to speak so much about myself now, but the idea that, the Mars and Saturn combination, Mars and Capricorn, Saturn and Cap togetherness there, the co-presence, this is really setting us up for the next two years of the Saturn and Cap transit. There's a hardening um, and the hardening can be about ordering and organization, the idea of the clarity that goes with if we if we form and strengthen here, then we can be more productive or effective in other areas. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, 100% agree. That, that's actually really important because I just noticed and I didn't realize this previously because I was confining myself to only looking at August, but Saturn's really close to stationing and it stations early September, uh, direct in very early Capricorn at the very beginning of September. Yeah. So that kind of re-emphasizes what you're saying there, Kelly, in terms of setting things up for the longer term Saturn transit over the next couple of years. Yeah. And Mars will still be in, in late Cap. I know they're not connected by degree, but they are kind of just vibing in the same place. Yeah. Definitely. They're co-present, right? They're, yeah. they're roommates in the same house. Yeah. They're, they're just, their rooms are on opposite sides of the structure. Um, but just one thing I wanted to say about that full moon in Pisces. Oh yeah. Um, you know, pretty chill. Like that'll be the first non eclipsed lunation since, um, June. And not only that, um, you know, if we just look at the lunations over this season, so we talked about the solar eclipse in Leo and which happens in August. And then before that was the lunar eclipse in Aquarius. And before that was, um, uh, was, uh, uh, a, a slight, but still real, um, solar eclipse in Cancer. And before that was a full moon tightly conjunct Saturn. So we have had a rough series of lunations and that, that string, uh, that string is broken by this full moon in Pisces. It is, it's got, it's interesting because it's got a really tight sextile to Uranus and a really tight sextile to Saturn. If you're into midpoints, the full moon is on the Uranus Saturn midpoint. Um, but, and that's interesting in that that actually suggests like to me, especially with it being timed around Mars's direct station, also in an earth sign, um, changing, you know, like, um, changing things physically, like rearranging the way your money works or, 
uh, or, you know, uh, or, you know, rebuilding a section of, of your house or moving like, you know, moving around real things. We've got that Saturn structure, that Uranus change, both in Earth signs and then the moon receiving that. But the moon in a good place, in a fecund place in mm-hmm. Pisces mm-hmm. Um, receiving that. And and so, like, yeah, that's not like the perfect piece full moon, but it's the best lunation we've had in a long time. It absolutely is. And Austin, just to be really explicit on what you're speaking to here, on the 25th of August, the sun will go through to Virgo and activate the sort of temporary grand trine configuration where it's, this is also kind of as close as the Saturn and Uranus trine gets and the sun kind of pulls that in and then we have the lunation. So it's it's kind of a full few days on that last weekend in August but I, oh, yeah. I've said exactly the same thing to my tribe, Austin, the idea of that grand trine configuration. We are rearranging the moving pieces, the material, the money, um, the body, the environment. Uh, you know, it's, it's all those physical components that need a bit of a refresh um, or a restructure or a reset of some kind. Yeah. And maybe an update. They definitely, we need to run some new software, basically. Yeah. And and it's this, but it's like you said, it's like the software of where things actually are. Like I'm going, like I, I, what I'll probably end up doing is totally rearranging my office. I've had like things that I was going to do for a while. It's like buy a new bookshelf. These books go in the shelf. That shelf goes in the Southeast corner of the room, right? Like it, it, it's, it's solid like that. It's yeah. There's real, there's tangible and there's substance. Uh, and something is physically different afterwards than, than what it was before. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did want to make one point about the full moon fixed star connection. Oh, yeah. I feel like we would be, we cannot not talk about the fact that this full moon is conjunct a royal star, conjunct formal halt, um, which is a star. What degree is that? It's at? three Pisces, basically. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it is a little bit more of a dull star. Like it's not the brightest of the royal stars. Um, it's associated with that sort of winter energy. But one of my favorite things about formal halt is it's about the idealism that clashes with mainstream thinking. And this can go a little bit either way where there's that sense of we're totally idealistic and unrealistic versus we've got some ideals that can inspire like a shift in perspective or even a change in behavior. That's true. I, um, so I have Mars natally on that star. Um, and, um, I love that star. Uh, that was probably one of my favorite stars to talk about in my star class. Um, it, the way I agree with everything you've said, what, and what I would add is that it has this like poet wizard energy. Totally. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, being able, it's like getting access to fairyland or being kidnapped. And then do you bring something real back from that or not? Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I've thought about like just in terms of the royal stars and what they do, like how do they grant, you know, uh, how do they grant a person being of the first rank? Right. And Aldebaran is, you know, Aldebaran, um, the eye of the bull is like this sturdy, you know, like this sturdy, enduring um what's the word like vigorous builder and changer of the world and regulus is regulus you know regulus is like the super famous you know it's it's the royal part of the royal stars you know it's just um it's big and everybody can see it um and it gives courage to assert oneself 
right? And then there's um, Antares, right? And Antares, the heart of the scorpion, you know, it, it grants eminence by being victorious in battle, right? It gives you, makes you, you know, impossible to kill and even, you know, and, and unwilling to ever admit defeat. You know, it's really, it's tough. And so when you're thinking about, I was thinking about this, you know, those are all really kind of easy to see how they grant eminence. But with Fomalhaut, you're like, you're imaginative. It's like the famous artist, the famous artist, or like the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, how should we say, like the court poet or the, the wizard at the court, you know, it, it's, it grants eminence through more artistic, magical sort of, um, uh, excellence rather than like a tough stuff or, you know, just super performative quality, like some of the other stars. Absolutely. It is. I mean, it's, I always think of the winter season as like, it's the mystical Royal star. It's the one that gives talent or skill in the magical arts. If you like. There is, um, there, there is one of the most famous, um, mixed martial artists. It's a guy named Anderson Silva, excuse me, Anderson Silva. And he, he's the Muhammad Ali. He's just amazing. He's like, you know, silky smooth poetry in motion. And I looked at his chart and he's, uh, he's got a Mars Fomalhaut conjunction. Yeah. And I was like, there it is like giving, you know, giving art to his Mars, which made him famous. Absolutely. And the, like a really simple way for people who are newer to these fixed star concepts and ideas is to think about that three degree marker in Pisces as the best type of the most classic Pisces energy that you could imagine. It's like uber productive, magical, mystical, the poetry, the creativity, the talent, the skill that has that otherworldly component to it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Excuse me. Absolutely. So, so in this, but in this case, it's going to be, it's going to be very much in service to that practical, pragmatic grand earth trine. It, absolutely. And I think that's the key is that, I mean, from a chart shape thing, it's, it's like a kite that's forming, but it, that creates more of a productive component. So I really like this last couple of days, like this last weekend in August with what's coming through with the Mars station. It feels like some unfolding and, and the final piece or pieces that help you move forward in a substantial way from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, just contrast it to the earlier part of the month, right? We have like one, it's a not crap lunation <laughs> and Mer- right. And then Mercury's direct and Mars is going direct. Mars is going and direct. Ve- yeah. And Venus and, and, and Venus, Libra. Yeah. Like this, this is, you know, this is good stuff. It's, it's very juicy. And then of course, yeah, that just the sign based support that um, Jupiter is giving to the lunation, which is in a Jupiter sign. So yeah. That's and Jupiter's direct and in a water sign. It's, and, it's very yeah. fertile. Like I think you use the word fecund. It's very fertile. There's a lot of this sort of growth energy there. It's very lush um, from well, a quality that, perspective. Yeah, in that that was the that water that you know big watery moon. Um, really, it helps the Grand Earth Trine from getting dried out. Yes, keeps it very wet. Keeps the ground wet, so something can grow and grow in in a flourishing way um, and in a faster way because that's what moisture gives. Yeah, and, and in like an imaginative way, because you know sometimes when you're rearranging, like if you're rearranging your office, like the example I give, you can do that because you have to. You're like, yeah, really, this would be better if I did that. It's boring, but then that same activity can also be inspired. Be like, oh, and then it's going to be like this, you know. And then the and energy the, will feel better, and it'll be more aligned, or the feng shui, or what have you. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And and the the Pisces moon gives it gives that practical rearrangement that like nice quality. So shout out to Pisces moons. <laughs> yeah, shout so out to Pisces. It's moons. funny that you guys it's funny that you guys mentioned all of this because this is actually the election for this month that Lisa <laughs> picked, right. picked out for us. Uh it's actually Lisa, August twenty sixth. Yeah, that's really funny, actually. I'll have to let her know that you guys uh, approved of this election and you sung it high praises before I even showed you the chart. So it's this month it's set for August 26, 2018 at about 7.30 p.m. Uh, local time, which here in Denver, Colorado gives about one degree of Pisces rising. So we had a couple of charts. There was another possible chart as our top pick of the month that was a Leo rising election with the sun in Leo and the sun right on the ascendant a little earlier in the month, but it had some drawbacks. We decided to go with this chart as the main one we're recommending this month. And this is a it's a Pisces rising chart, so you want about the first degree or two of Pisces rising. So this is happening right around sunset because the sun is at three degrees of Virgo at this point. So it's still a day chart, but it has Pisces rising with Jupiter in Scorpio in the ninth whole sign house. And the moon is in Pisces in this chart at about 10 degrees of Pisces, and it's applying to a trine with Jupiter with reception with the moon itself in Pisces. So, this is the part of the purpose of this chart is to take advantage of now that we're in the part of the year where Jupiter has stationed direct in Scorpio, um, it's going to make its way out of Scorpio just a few months from now later this year. So, we've got to start if we find a good chart where we can really take advantage of that Jupiter in Scorpio where it's otherwise not afflicted by any inner planets. It's a good time to take advantage of it while we still can um, now that it's direct again. So uh, it's a very ninth house focused chart, uh, but it has a lot of those qualities that you guys were talking about in terms of the wa- wateriness with the moon and Jupiter sort of as the focal points in, in Pisces and Scorpio. Totally. Mm-hmm. And of course, selfishly, because I'll be in Australia, I'm like, how does this translate down under? And uh, it looks like it'll be the day after the 27th, a, around maybe five or six in the evening. Just double. Do you, do you want an early rise, early Pisces rising, Chris? For this, was that the goal, or just any Pisces, any degree yeah. rising? No, I mean there is a question here about whether to make it a day chart or a night chart. I would lean. I, we lean more towards a day chart, so that creates a very narrow time window, so that you have to make sure. That you have at least like only like one or two degrees of Pisces rising, which is kind of tricky because Pisces actually rises very quick as a rising sign. So you have to make sure that you get that window pretty precisely. And we have it set for 730 here because that's when one degree of Pisces is rising in Denver, but you need to adjust the time so that uh, the ascendant is at one degree of Pisces in whatever your location is. Uh, and that's really part of the main point of this chart to keep it a day chart. That way, Jupiter is um, of the sect in favor. It's a benefic, a daytime planet in a, in a day chart. You could make it a night chart because one of the downsides is that Mars or, or Jupiter is then ruled by Mars, which is stationing direct in the 11th in a day chart, but at least it's exalted in Capricorn. It has a nice relationship with Jupiter and Venus. And uh, yeah, so that's one of the reasons we lean towards more of a day chart rather than a night chart. Lovely. So very early Pisces rising, zero, one or two degrees to keep the sun right on the descendant. Yeah. So that's yeah. great. And, and also to also to make sure it's also good in terms of making sure that the moon is applying to Jupiter in a day chart rather than Jupiter in a night chart, just in order to further accentuate uh, the positiveness of that sort of reception between the moon being in Pisces, which is ruled by Jupiter and applying to it 
by making Jupiter a little bit more benefic. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, that's totally so this is also f- in Sydney. Right. Oh, it is. Okay, yeah, it's about. That, yeah, that's one of the tricky things. I was looking at, it's basically August 27th at around 5.20 p.m. And that's what, that'll give you two Pisces rising, um, which is the moon is maybe uh, she's at 12 or 13 degrees Pisces. So she's still in the same application. Um, okay. So still, still applying to Jupiter. Yeah, that's what I was trying to, because sometimes when you change the location so differently, you can't get the moon application. But because it's a longer application here, it totally works. Yeah, that's an issue we run into. And that's why we didn't go with the other Leo rising election, I believe, because it was applicable in all time zones except for the West Coast of the United States. So we decided to to not make that our primary election this month because it wouldn't be usable by the entire like Western coast. So this chart's actually funny also because this is basically very similar to a core part of the chart of the astrologer Robert Zoller, who was oh, born yeah. with Pisces rising and Jupiter in Scorpio and the moon in Pisces in a day chart applying to a trine with Jupiter. So it's kind of like this chart is like a little Robert Zoller talisman, you might say. <laughs> what, what would be your delineation, Austin, for, I mean, because I always think of Zoller as like mystical guy into occult arts like astrology, but also other things like alchemy and things like that, which I always thought was very fitting of his ruler of the ascendant in the ninth house. And he becomes like, the astrologer known for doing medieval astrology during the early revival of older forms of astrology astrology in the 1980s and 90s, as well as one of the few astrologers that became associated with some of the predictions that he made about 9-11. Um, what's your general take on how would you delineate that with the ruler of the Ascendant in the Ninth in Scorpio? Uh, for this election? Yeah, or just in general. Um. So, I mean, yeah, the so the I'm the ninth house in Hellenistic astrology and in other astrologies, but it's very clear in the Hellenistic is where you see magic, religion, um, um, uh, uh, prognostication, such as through astrology, right? You read through Firmicus and right. it's like, oh, like for, for me, I have the sun in the ninth house. He's like, oh yeah. So what you should do is you would be really happy working in the temple, constructing divine images. Right. Because, you know, sun visibility and image yeah. ninth. He's like, oh, right. Saturn in the ninth. You'd be great at keeping the temple clean and making sure the ceremonies run on time. Also, you'd be not bad at interpreting dreams. Right. So the ninth is, you know, the ninth is also more mundane things like taking a trip. But the ninth is the like, it's the house where you see spiritual work and spiritual power. And so, um, to a certain degree, the ninth, uh, and this is, um, uh, this is an idea that I think you can find in Western strands of astrology, but is more explicit uh, in Vedic astrology is the ninth. The ninth is also a lucky place. It's just lucky, mm-hmm. right? You know, in to a certain degree, that's what that's what magic aims at is to create a very specific kind of luck so that this will go well or this will happen. Right. And so Jupiter is obviously a nice fit for the ninth and it's direct and uninflicted ruling the first that's beautiful if i'm not correct or if i'm not uh incorrect with zoller i believe he had a mercury mars sun conjunction in aquarius has has he's uh still with us on this plane right and so for that there you have the ruler of the uh, uh the ruler of the ninth in the 12th with the with the sect light 
And so, you know, the ruler of the the ninth and the twelfth is going to take you even deeper into mysteries, right? That linkage of the of the the ninth and twelfth. But um anyway. that's that's and, nice. I've heard some very negative interpretations of the ruler of the ninth and the twelfth. I like your one better. Oh, I think it's going to not be as good for material things mm-hmm. and luck, but I think it will be. Uh, it would it would uh, serve quite nicely on a you know spiritual esoteric level. That's really cool. Yeah, um, ninth house, like ruler of the ascendant in the ninth type stuff is always funny to me because oftentimes, or sometimes you do get like major religious themes coming up in the person or the person being very interested in metaphysical or philosophical or religious things. But then, you know, in some of the Hellenistic texts, it's funny because it sometimes delineates like negative placements there as problems or struggles with religion or skepticism about it. And um, when I did a lot of my research for this and putting together a lecture on the ruler of different houses, like the ruler of the ascendant and the ninth, um, one of the ones that was funny of, of there was like a major astrology skeptic who ended up having like Saturn there in the ninth in a, in a night chart. And I was just going to bring that up. I was literally going really. to bring that up with Firmicus. Um, I was getting Firmicus open. Please go on. I'm very excited. We are literally on the same page. Yeah. Well, I just always, always fascinated by that. So I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the chart of Jeffrey Dean, who was like a major astrology skeptic and who supposedly his story was that he was an astrologer or he was somewhat into astrology, but then later decided it was false. And so- um, sort of dedicated his career to to critiquing or attacking it, and that that's such an interesting manifestation then of having that placement in the ninth house as being something that you're where you're sort of skeptical about the topic of that house or or where you um, struggle with it in some way and and manifesting in a very literal way like that. So can I just read you one paragraph, which is which is Firmicus delineating Saturn in the ninth by day and then by night? Yeah. yeah. Because it's hilarious. Okay. (laughs) Saturn in the ninth house will make famous magicians, renowned philosophers, or temple priests noted for their reputation for magic. According to the nature of the signs, he also makes seers, diviners, and astrologers. They are always outstanding in their responses. Some carry on the rites of temples or are in charge of rituals. Sometimes they become long-haired philosophers or interpreters of dreams. However... Saturn in this house by night indicates the wrath of gods and hatred of emperors, especially if the waning moon is moving toward him in any way. But greater evils still are predicted from gods and emperors if Mars from any direction is an aspect to Saturn and the moon. Um, So the reason my mind went to that is I did an article for the Mountain Astrologer, I don't know, six, seven years ago about the, uh, the chart of Marilyn Manson. And he has right. Saturn in the ninth with the waning moon move applying to Saturn. And if you want to like somebody who is hated by, by God, the wrath of gods and emperors, this is someone who was literally billed himself as the antichrist superstar uh, and who authority figures everywhere hated people protested his stuff. But I thought that was an amazing, I thought it was amazing because, and you see like to, to call him sacrilegious is an understatement in the extreme. Right. But so you see the wrath of gods and anger at God or gods, the hatred of emperors, like people who are ruling. But that was what made him famous. Like, that's true. But that was actually the key to his eminence. And it's just, you know, it's a funny thing where it's exactly as it is in the book, but different. 
Yeah, I always appreciate that and love that when you have like ancient, sometimes very literal and sometimes very like stark or extreme delineations, like in the old textbooks from like 2000 years ago. And then seeing somebody with that placement in modern times having a manifestation of it that, that fits it very perfectly from an archetypal sense, but still puts a, a modern or a unique spin on it uh, that that is sort of unique in some way. Yeah, or just like, you know, and it would be fun to go back to his chart, but like, obviously the planets involved there have are, are keys to eminence or they're, they're part of um, eminence combinations or Raja yogas for him. And so being hated was the key to his success. Right. Yeah. And he has like the ruler of the ascendant, like applying to that with uh, reception and all sorts of other weird things. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so this is an election like that. And it's very much ninth house focused. Um, so I think it would be a good time. Uh, one of the things that like a ninth house pursuit would be like education and with the ruler of the ascendant being in the ninth house in Scorpio, maybe like a beginning an educational uh, focus or pursuit, especially of a more scorpionic nature of, you know, like occult things or something like that would be a great sort of symbolic use of this election. Yeah. It, getting into something, um, starting a course of study. Yeah. But again, I think that the ninth house is also just, um, especially Jupiter in the ninth direct and unafflicted is um, there's also just like a, a a general or global, this is useful for a lot of things. Um, but I would say that it, I would agree totally that it would be especially useful uh, for something of that nature. Well, and especially it's for um, serious things and, and doing things in a, in a very deliberate and doing a sort of deep dive educational pursuit into something where you're not like just sort of scratching the surface, but you're sort of going all the way as far as you can in terms of um, pursuing some course of study or looking into something, I guess, more broadly speaking. Right. And so I, the, what I want to say immediately, which I realize is so Pisces moon, is immersing yes. yourself, right? Hmm. Yes. Immersing, locking yourself uh, away with all your knowledge. It can be, you know, if we're talking from an electional perspective where you consciously choose to do something at this time. So signing up for a course, starting to work with a mentor. Um, but it could also be that, you know, if you're out and about at this time of day, you might stumble across something that becomes influential or motivating or inspiring or aspirational for you. Yeah, definitely. This would be a great time to start a research project. Totally. Or maybe start writing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, all that's right. So cool. that's that's our auspicious electional chart for August. Uh, we actually have three other charts that Lisa found this month that we're going to talk about in the Auspicious Elections podcast, which is available to patrons who support the show on the five and ten dollar tiers. So we'll be recording and releasing that tomorrow, I believe. So all you need to do is sign up to become a patron through our page on Patreon, and then you can get access to that each month as soon as it's released. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it for the elections. And that kind of brings us to the end of um, this month. I think we accidentally went way, way over time. And the, the clock is telling me it's been two and a half hours. And I don't quite believe that. It seems a little long, but apparently we've been doing this for quite a while. We <laughs> had a lot of fun and time flies when you're, when you're doing that. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were yeah. Some, some interesting uh, side roads that we explored. Sure, we were even more more digressive than usual this month, but that's all right. Yeah, Mercury's um, retrograde, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, so 
Yeah. Anything else to close up? So definitely in terms of listeners, let me know um, because I'm trying to come up with lecture topics and maybe this applies to you also, Kelly. Uh, if you guys have any suggestions for lecture topics you'd like us to see, see us do at Norwalk next year, like in-person giving lectures, let us know because Kelly and I will both be scrambling to come up with those topics over the next few days before the deadline. So we would appreciate any suggestions about what people actually want to see. Additionally, if you'd be interested in attending a post-conference workshop with the three of us, let me know since I want to seriously consider potentially trying to do do something uh, next year. And I'd like to see if people would actually be interested in staying over at the conference an ex- extra day to do something like that. Yeah, either coming in a day early or staying over a day later at the end, like before or after. Mm. Right. Because I know that um, our dear friend and colleague, Mark Jones, has a thing that happens the day before the official Norwak stuff. So um, right. not that we would be competing with him, but the venue would be uh, open, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I was given a, I think, it, I think it's a post-conference. So I'm just trying to decide whether to do a workshop on something or it would kind of be more fun to do something with the three of us. But yeah, I'd like to hear what people think. All right, guys. Well, I think that's it for this episode of the podcast. So thanks a lot for for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to catch up with you guys. And I look forward to checking in again next month. I guess, Kelly, you'll be in, in Australia by that time, right? I will be in Australia when I chat to you all next month. So I look forward to that as always. Awesome. And Austin, I hope that the world around you or nature outside of your house is not on fire by the time we talk again in a few weeks. Yeah, me too. Me too. That would be that would be great. The the wild the fires are closer than I would like. But yeah. um well you know, we've got a car. We can outrun it if need be. As long as you have a carrier sure. for your cat. We do. He yeah. loves and it's his least favorite thing in the world. But um he used to just meow for hours if he was stuck in there, and now he just accepts it and gets super depressed. Aww. He's just like, Oh it's like you can you, you can't you know, cats are only reasonably emotionally communicative a lot of the time, but it's just like waves of depression coming off of this Aww. cat. He just is silent and just sits there and won't even eat treats. <laughs> Bless. But that's better. It's better for going to the vet than, you know, <laughs> for two hours straight. That's how it used to be. Well, and, and next month we'll have to consider when we do our forecast episode, maybe using this election with Pisces rising and Jupiter in the ninth for the next forecast episode. Oh, hmm. now you, I don't know, dude, I kind of need to start like three things <laughs> during a very small window of time. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Then we would have to do this instead of initiate other projects. All right. We'll, we'll think about that. We'll figure it out over the next few weeks and we will see you everyone again next month. So thanks everyone for joining. We'll see you again next time and yeah, have a good month. Bye. Bye. 